I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 3 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and with me today is my co-host, Scott Harvey. Today, we'll be discussing two more Oscar-nominated films, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and Phantom Thread, as we inch ever closer to the Academy Awards ceremony on the first Sunday in March. But before we get to the movies today, Scott, how have you been doing since we last got together, and have you been as absorbed by the Olympics as you have been by the movies the last few days? Uh, well, I've been trying to watch uh, a little bit. I'm doing good, by the way. I should have answered that first. But uh, <laughs> I, I've been trying to watch a little bit. I was watching the snowboarding last night. I saw the guy who fell a couple times and then ended up winning it from America. So Red that, was, uh, that yeah. was good. Yep, Red Gerard. Um, that was a crazy run. His gold yeah, medal I know, run. Yeah, Oof. I was I was glad, like you know, all the pressure was on him for that last run or whatever. Um, so I was glad he was able to pull it out. But yeah, I'm I'm excited to uh, to discuss a couple of movies, a couple of. Uh, dark and disturbing movies here on this episode to say the least um so why don't we just go ahead and get the party started and we're gonna start today with three billboards outside ebbing missouri which we're a little bit late to the party too but um we'll go with it anyway so three billboards was released back in the late fall on november 10th 2017 squeezed in between the mega box office releases of thor ragnarok and justice league nevertheless it's done exceedingly well uh it recently eclipsed the hundred million dollar mark which I think is pretty impressive. Uh, even even as much hype as this film has for a film of its nature, I think it's pretty impressive to break $100 million. Uh, Yeah, and uh, it went up against a $12 million budget, so Martin McDonough and the distributors are really raking it in in yeah. terms of uh, payback on their, on their money invested. So as I kind of just mentioned, the film is directed by Martin McDonough and boasts an exceedingly good cast with the likes of Frances McDormand in the lead role, supported by superstar performances from Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson, as well as others such as Caleb Landry-Jones, who had a busy 2017 starring in Get Out and The Florida Pod Project on top of He's this great. film. He's really good. Yeah, and as well as Peter Dinklage of Game of Thrones fame, that they had somewhat smaller roles in the film, but were still notable nevertheless. So this film was a critical darling upon release and has already begun to take home a considerable number of awards. We've talked about it on this show just a few weeks back uh, when we talked about the Golden Globes where it won four awards, including Best Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture, Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama, Best Screenplay, and Best Motion Picture Drama. So really cleaning up. And it also has received seven nominations at the Oscars in six different categories. And to say the least, I think we have a lot to talk about with this film. But before we drill down into more specific bits, why don't we give some spoiler-free general impressions of the film for those, of the, for those people out there who are still you know, waiting to see the film. It is coming out on iTunes, I believe, this week. I think it's releasing, where you can purchase the film. Okay. But, uh, yeah, so just the, the opening bits, we're going to do no spoilers, but then after we go into a little bit more detail, we are going to break out some serious spoilers, which this film has a lot of. So what did you think of Martin McDonough's latest film? Uh, so I, you know, this is a movie that I have been thinking about for a long time, because I actually saw it um, 
I think maybe even November 10th or November 11th, like right after it came out. Because this, it's been on my radar for probably like a year now since I heard about the concept of the movie, heard about everyone who was involved, including Mark McDonough. Um, this was one I was really excited to see. And then I actually saw it again a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's, it is still fresh in my mind. Um, and yeah, as you said, there's just a lot of talk, lots to talk about with this movie. Um, but in general, I am a huge fan of this movie. Um, you know, I talked a little bit about what I, what I liked about it on that first episode when we talked about the Golden Globes. But, um, you know, the main thing that sticks out to me is just the complexity of all of the characters, um, how no one is fully good or fully bad. Um, they're all just human beings, which I think is, is in some, a lot of ways one of, the, one of the hardest things to do as a writer is to write three-dimensional characters because, it's, it's, you know, it's easy to write someone who's fully good, fully bad. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to do what Martin McDonough did. Um, in this movie, I think this movie has a lot of laughs, which you may not um, may not be your impression from seeing the trailer, um, because it is a very dark movie. But that's just the way Martin McDonough works in his movies. Um, there's a lot of humor to it, and if you honestly, if you don't get the humor in these movies, you're probably not going to enjoy them, uh, because otherwise, they're just going to seem like really relentlessly bleak. But I think he tried to do some different things um, with this movie. That he, he, he tried to go a little deeper with this one than he has in his previous two movies, which are In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. Um, and I think that he mostly succeeds. Um, we'll talk about maybe some areas where he might slip up a little bit. Um, but one area where I think this movie does not slip up at all is, as you mentioned, the cast. Um, top to bottom, the cast in this movie is incredible. I think this is the best acted movie of the year. Um and I think it's probably going to take home at least a couple of, uh, of acting Oscars um, for Francis McDormand and Sam Rockwell. Uh, so, yeah, the, I'm, I, this is one of my top five movies of um, 2017. And actually, I think it, I like it. I liked it even more the second time I saw it. and might have even moved a little bit higher on my list. Interesting. I think that's a, a really it's a really good point to point out the fact that it, it's now quite actually quite a few months removed from when it was released, so that refresh, I'm sure, was really useful, and it's interesting that it, that it resonated yeah. with you even more this, of the second time of watching. For me, with this film, I, to kind of do a broad strokes approach to this, I actually was very skeptical of this film for the first 40 to 45 minutes. There was a particular scene at that point in the film, 40 to 45 minutes in, which is very spoilery, which we won't talk about for a little bit, that really turns the film for me, and I then start to get into what the film's doing, got more invested in the characters, and just became more invested in the, in what the film was doing on the screen in terms of, you know, almost cinema, cinema uh, in terms of cinematography, but also in terms of narrative arc, as well as uh, character development in particular. Yeah. And from there, it, it really had me in its, in its teeth and didn't let me go until, you know, the credits rolled. That was something that really struck me because it really felt like a whirlwind from that point to the end and the film changed a lot in my in my perspective and the characters changed a lot too that's one of the reasons that i think um the performances are so impressive um because the the characters do change um as they go along so especially you know not to give anything away, but Sam Rockwell's character goes through a lot in this movie. Um, I think the way he's able to capture that as an actor, um, you know, he doesn't just stay flat the whole time. And the same goes for the rest of the cast. Um, but I think that's one of the reasons why 
uh, from an acting perspective, it is particularly impressive. Yeah, and then kind of changing gears a little bit, but still staying spoiler-free and more of a general impressions. I did... The, the score of this film really is something that stuck out to me, although not necessarily in a positive way. I thought that it was kind of overbearing at times. It's something that I was really into, particularly the weird, like, opera moments. I don't even know how to describe it. There was yeah, one I, right at the beginning of the film. I think the film opens with a, yeah. a musical scene like that, and there's a couple scenes later in the film that also have it. But it's just, it was very strange to me. I didn't, it didn't work for me. I don't know if it, if it worked for you, but... Well, well, yeah, I have the opposite reaction, actually, because I, want, I think that this movie... Although, the other movie which we're going to talk about also has an amazing score. For me, those are the top two, but two best. But honestly, I feel like this one might be the one which I would like to see win the Oscar for Carter Burwell. Um, and to me, it reminded me, strangely enough, of the score that he did for another movie, also starring Francis McDormand. Uh, Fargo, of course, um, which I think is one of the five greatest scores for a movie of all time. Um, like the opening, uh, opening song in that movie, opening track is just like a stunning piece of uh, music. So if you've never heard it, go back and listen to that. Um, but I thought that um, as far as like the operatic tone, because that is kind of what he gets at in Fargo as well. Um, I feel like it really adds to the the sort of the way Martin McDonough is painting the story as almost like a Greek tragedy type um, type story, except um, I disagree with that. Greek tragedy, the, really? Well, a, sort of a, a classical tragedy, maybe not Greek, so to speak, but a, a classical tragedy in the way that um, the the story plays out. Although at the end, it takes a twist um, and, and goes in a different direction than what you're expecting. Honestly, the tragic moment kind of happens. Uh, in a different portion of the film. Um, but I think he was really just trying to get at um, that this is a film more about human nature as a whole. This is not just, you know, a fun little romp set in this small town. Sure, I think that's fair. And, and I do want to clarify my statements about the score. I would say by the end of the film, I was into what the music that was happening in the background, uh, yeah. particularly the, the theme of the film, the one that you hear, that I remember hearing at the Golden Globes when it won awards, the kind of, what I would call like its tagline piece of music is something that I I didn't necessarily like it at first, but then I really liked it, which is I think true for a lot of parts of this film. I didn't like it at first, and then I really liked it by the end. But yeah. the operatic tone is something that didn't didn't do it for me. Although it sounds like I may be in the minority in terms of I mean this was nominated for an Oscar, I believe, for best score. Yes, it was. Yeah, and you're a big fan of it, so I could just be it could just be me, and it'd be interesting to see. No, this is this is why we have the podcast. Yeah, different yeah. opinions, you know. Oh, absolutely. I'm saying it could just be me, and, and I could, and everyone out there could disagree with me. And it would be, I would be interested to see if I watch this movie again, if it would be different, since I did have such a different opinion of the score at the end of the movie. I wonder if it would That's resonate true, with yeah. me more the second time, because it seems like everything that you've talked about so far has resonated with you more the second time you've watched it. Not that it didn't resonate with you the first time, though. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think it's about time to start talking about where spoilers become fair game. That doesn't mean we're eventually we're just initially going to grow a break right into spoilers. But for those of you listening who plan on seeing the film or uh, don't want to hear spoilers, I would say check the time code, skip forward to the next film, because now spoilers are fair game, and uh, so no- nothing nothing is barred from this point forward. But let's kind of shift from general impressions to particularly Martin McDonough. I'd like to talk about. His performance here. I haven't seen any of his other films. It sounds like you might have. 
from what you've been talking about. And uh, yes, I've, I've seen both of them, but it's been a while since I've seen both of them. Yeah, I would just love to get your perspective on what you, how you think he does in this film, where his direction, you see it best. I, he wrote this as well, so I suppose his fingerprints are really all over this. Uh, what did you think of Martin McDonough's influence on this film, which is significant? Yeah, so I think in some ways it's not... You're not really getting a lot new from Martin McDonough if you've seen either any of his other films or his plays, even because he, he's a playwright before he was a filmmaker. But um, but uh, because just the way that he blends comedy and violence um, is something that is consistent throughout all of his work, um, and he certainly does that again in, in this movie. Um, and but I think I think for the characters in this movie, it makes a lot more sense. The way that comedy and violence sometimes blend together, even in the same scene, um, says a lot about these characters. Um, and but as as familiar as that kind of um, that kind of stuff in the movie is, um, there's he's he's breaking some new ground as well. Just uh, I think he's just going for a more more profound feel to this movie. Um, both first of all in the way, like I said, you know, he's trying to make a comment about human nature in general um i think and the capacity for change that that people have um whereas you know his other two movies are i don't want to say fun fun romps but you know they're not they're not as they're not going for something as meaningful as this movie is um but also sort of some of the political um stuff that goes on in this movie like i i I feel like he's trying to be very on the nose politically um at certain points um so first of all, you have the bit at the beginning, and it's kind of it kind of continues throughout, where Frances McDormand is talking about the police's failure to investigate her daughter's uh, murder mm-hmm. uh, more more thoroughly, and it, and she says something like, "It seems to me like the police are more concerned with killing black folks um, or torturing black folks um, than uh, you know than investigating the murder of my daughter or whatever." And you know, race is something that. Um, is a theme throughout this movie, particularly um, in, with Sam Rockwell's character, but also a little bit with Woody Harrelson's character. I mean, you see that um, I talk about the complexity of the characters, even like Woody Harrelson's character, for example. Um, you know, even though everyone in the town loves him, you kind of want him to be the sympathetic guy you can root for. But there are, you know, he has some prejudices um, that really. Um, come through at certain points in the movie. Um, and even to that point, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about Woody Harrelson's character later, his sympathy for Sam Rockwell's character is definitely yes. a huge negative. Yeah, um, but also as far as the, you know, some of the political social commentary that's going on in the movie, um, probably my least favorite scene in the movie, just because um, it strikes of being a little outdated to me, and you, you might want to fact check me on this, but I feel like this movie was written I read where this movie was written several years ago, um, and that might maybe why this particular scene feels dated. But it's the scene towards the beginning of the movie where um, Frances McDormand um, comes into her home, and um, her pastor, her priest, is there um, with her son, uh, played by Lucas Hedges, um, and they, she goes on this long, uh, sort of allegorical um, tale about the Bloods and the Crips. Um, and basically, she's trying to sort of call out the, the the father for his hypocrisy. But basically, what she ends up tying it all back into is, you know, ch- accusations of child molestation uh, on the part of um, the priests and 
all of the priests really um, at, at whatever church this is in, the, in this town. Um, and to me, it just struck a little like it. It was a little too cliche, like for her to simply resort to, oh, of co- like of course, um, you know, these priests are involved in in child molestation. Like that's that's all priests. Like it, it was it was a little. He was painting with broad strokes a little bit in that scene, um, and it just felt like a very stereotypical um, place to go with um, with that particular scene in terms of a way that she can sort of clap back at the priest for his judging of her. Yeah. Um, so I felt like that scene was a little too broad um, for I, me. I but, agree. And to your point, I was yeah. I just looked up that. So principal photography on this film started about two years ago. So just okay. based on a timeline of a movie, I'd expect that the script was written probably a, even a year before that. So okay. yeah, twenty like early 2015, which kind of makes sense for what you're saying. And, and I agree with the part about that scene in particular, actually the one you're describing where she comes home and Robbie is there with the priest and yeah. she does, she gives that allegory and whatnot. That's one of the reasons that this film just really didn't, I can think of that scene in particular when I think of why this film didn't work for me in the first 40 to 45 minutes. Yeah. It just felt like your grandma giving you a little bit of a lecture. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it just kind of stuck out, especially from the rest of, of the film. Although Francis McDormand's character is very preachy throughout the film. Yes, yes, that that is true, but I don't know. It, 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 it was very, like, stagey, almost, that sure. scene. It felt like something you would see in, in a play, which, you know, he is a playwright. Um, very true. So they, it kind of took me out of it for a little bit, but um, luckily that was, that was an exception in this movie. Yeah, and yeah, I think I agree with, in large part, what you're saying. One of the things for me, I think I'm a little less hot on Martin McDonough in this film than you are. I actually, I I know I mentioned this to you maybe off air last week when we were recording that I don't really know why he's nominated for best director in either. I don't believe he he is nominated. He's not right. That's what I'm saying. I can understand why he isn't nominated for best director and I can, and I'm confused why he, why he was nominated and for best director and even, and same goes for his screenwriting for at the golden globes. I mean, we're going to talk about how off-putting Phantom Thread is later too, but like this, this film is off-putting in less of a good way in certain instances, and I think it's entirely because of Martin McDonough. As good as the acting performances are, which we're going to talk about in a little while, I think that this film really doesn't do a great job from a director standpoint, and some of the some of the writing around the characters, not the acting, but the writing, really doesn't work for me. In particular, when we'll talk, we'll talk in detail about this when we talk about Sam Rockwell. But Sam yeah. Rockwell's character, I think, is just really off for me in a lot of ways. And we, well, that and, has been a common criticism of the film. Um, I don't share that opinion, but uh, you know, I I'm interested to discuss that point as well because it has been that you know, sort of the main point of contention. But where where people who who love this movie and people who do not like it sort of diverge really seems to hinge on how they feel about that Sam Rockwell character. Yeah, and I and I and I will again note this later that this has nothing to do with Sam Rockwell's acting because I think it's absolutely spectacular in the film. Yeah, but it's the direction his character is given by Martin McDonough, as well as the direction that some of the other characters are given. That being said, I want to recognize that as you as you put it, kind of in the start of our discussion, Martin McDonough does a tremendous job writing three dimensional characters who you may like or dislike, and you may disagree with the direction that they go. But you, I think it's really hard to say that they aren't interesting and three-dimensional at the same time. 
Yeah, and to me, that's why I think this movie does deserve to be nominated, at least in the screenplay category. Um, you know, maybe not. Maybe I can understand the directorial him not getting nominated a little bit, just because it ha- it was a really strong year for directors. If you look at the field in the best director category, like you know, I, I, there's not one of them where I can say, well, he he could have easily replaced that person. Uh, yeah. But I definitely think screenplay wise, um, he definitely deserves to be in the in the hunt. Fair enough, and and I think now this is some a topic we're going to be revisiting as we talk about the individual characters. But let's go ahead and start talking about Francis McDormand's uh, Mildred in this film. What did you think of this lead role? From you know from start to finish, she's someone in my perspective who doesn't really grow that much. And I don't know if if you're going to disagree with me pretty savagely here, and if so, please take me to task for this. But when I think at the beginning of this film, when she when she decides to paint these billboards and challenge the police department, to the end of this film, I just don't see growth for her character. That doesn't mean she's not acted well. It doesn't mean she isn't interesting to follow over the course of the film. But I just wasn't quite sure what the like where her character was going, and ultimately, I'm not sure it went anywhere. Yeah. Well, I think that I, I, I agree that I don't think that she grows a lot um, as a character, particularly compared to Sam Rockwell's character. Um, but I think that maybe that is kind of the point um, because we see how stubborn this character is throughout the movie. Like she, she, throughout the entire movie, she only has one goal in mind, and that is finding the person who um, who killed her daughter. Um, and you know, she doesn't find that person in the movie. Um, so I think it, it makes sense that um, maybe she doesn't undergo uh, as much of a change as some of the other characters, just because her, you know, she is still her mind is still focused on this same single-minded pursuit um, at the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie. And you know, at the end of the movie, the two characters they're they're off to do they're off to maybe maybe do something um, that uh, will give them both closure, but maybe not because you know. It seems that um, from what what is revealed towards the end of the movie, that the person they're going to find doesn't have anything to do with um, with Francis with Mildred's daughter's killer. Um, but um, you know, I think it would be interesting to see if this movie had been fifteen minutes longer. Um, you know, what ends up happening, um, and you know, does it give these characters some sort of closure? In the case of um, in the case of Sam Rockwell's character does the complete sort of a change for him or, you know, what really happens. But I think that, um, I think that there's a point to the fact that Francis McDormand's character doesn't grow as much throughout this movie. Um, and as far as her performance goes, I thought it was maybe the best performance of the year, um, 2017. Um, just no holds barred, funny, like, I think she just captured the tone of this character so perfectly. Um, and, I, I just I, I really admire her as an actor actress because um, you know she's not showy um, she just goes out um, and does a job um, and she's just herself I feel like in a, and, in a lot of roles um, and I think she just really brought so much flavor um, and so much um, depth to this character um, in a way that not many actresses could have and you know I think it is probably her best performance since Fargo although of course I haven't seen all of her movies since then um but for me this performance really makes her you know it, it really makes her could make or break the movie 
Um, and it absolutely makes it for me because I thought she was sensational. I agree. I think that the question of her changing over the course of the movie aside, the the nuance and depth which she plays Mildred is pretty astounding to me. Especially if you think about... And to give Martin McDonough credit, when you think about the nuance and complexity with which he writes Mildred as a character, this person who's deeply vengeful over the death of her daughter, who maybe is filled with a lot of guilt about the death of her daughter, who is seeking this, like, just someone to take this seriously, to find out who did this. And at the same time, I believe is somewhat empathetic to the people around her. I'm thinking of the scene when she's, I think she was arrested Right. Yeah, she was, I, 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 this was the exact moment I was about to bring up. But yeah, yeah. She, it's after she uh, goes to the dentist, I believe, and injures the guy. Right, yeah, she goes to the dentist and she's brought into the police department and she's being her, what what we knew at the, up to this point, she's being her normal self and being defiant, almost, you know, <laughs> beyond stubborn. And then you see this moment where Woody Harrelson's character coughs up blood and the look in her eyes the like at the flip of a switch to this empathy where you can tell as much as she cares about finding her daughter's killer she's not a she's not as cold-hearted as she initially comes off to be and the skill at which she displays that in the scene is is breathtaking in my yeah, opinion yeah that that moment maybe one of the best moments in the entire movie like when Woody Harrelson coughs up blood and there's like that couple second a couple seconds go by of silence uh, where yeah. there's, there's just like a pause and you're just like what's gonna happen because up to this point in the movie we haven't really seen anything from mildred except for this really harsh vengeful side um so yep. you know you kind of expect that she's going to fly off the handle um but it goes in a completely different direction and i think that's you know one of the first moments in this movie where i knew okay this is a great movie like this is we're, we're watching something special here and i mean there's some other moments too where she displays sort of that uh, more empathetic side. Uh, the scene with the deer, which is kind of a weird scene. Um, I didn't like but, the scene, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It, it wasn't one of my favorites either. But you do see a different side of Mildred in that scene, and even the moment where um, he, she and Robbie are watching the news and they find out that Willoughby has died. Um, you see in that moment that um, you know, for all the the qualms that she has with Willoughby and with the police department in this movie. Um, I think she respected him as a person too and respected what he meant to the community. Um, and you can see that the loss sticks with her as well too, um, up until the point, the scene also where, uh, Mrs. Willoughby comes to the gift shop. Um, and we see, we see Mildred expressing some empathy in that scene as well. So yeah, I think that's really the beauty of this performance is the different dimensions to it. Yeah, I, I do think, again, and this goes back to McDonough way more than Francis McDormand's character, or sorry, Francis McDormand's performance, is that I, I do think that it, as, as much as we maybe praised him for three-dimensional characters, the lack of growth, even with the depth of the character, the lack of growth is something that I think is a little bit one-dimensional. She doesn't change, even though she has depth and nuance. I think that's something that is a negative for this film. I think it's an interesting point that you bring up about if this film went 15 minutes longer, so much of that perception of change in the film, of McDonough's perspective on maybe what happens if they do get to Idaho. Because you see yeah. a flicker of it in the car when they're at the very last moment where they're like, oh, I, I, 
I don't know if Are this will. Are you sure you want to do this? Exactly. Then I must say no. Yeah, you see the flicker of it, which is con- I think that's still consistent with her character over the course of the film. I'd be re- I'm so interested. Not that I think the film has to have gone 15 minutes longer, but I think that my opinion of this particular part of the film could change I me mean, one way or the other, right? Um, if if yeah, the film know, went 15 minutes longer. You know, you bring up that moment, and honestly, maybe that is where the change takes place a, a little bit. Um, because at the beginning of the movie, you probably would have said if, if you know, if there was anyone that, that came, came about who might have even possibly had anything to do with um, Mildred's daughter's death, uh, you would have expected her to kill him, go, you know, go crazy, do, do something. Um, but here at the end of the movie, um, when when they're going to find this guy in Idaho, and you know, I think they kind of both know that this is not the man they're looking for. But maybe there, you know, there's still a slim possibility. But the fact that she expresses some doubt about what they're going to do, um, you know, says to me that maybe she is reconsidering her her path towards vengeance and saying, you know, is this really something that is going to fulfill me? Um, should I? be focusing on should i be focusing all my energy on trying to find this person and get revenge or should i be focusing on you know trying to be a good person and moving on um from this from this incident incident because you know and a good parent to robbie yeah exactly because robbie has is a character who's clearly moved on from um the his sister's death or at least trying to move on more so than mildred is yeah well from the first from the first um time he sees the billboards um and he says as if i he says something like as if i you know didn't already think about her all the time now i have this reminder yeah um so you know clearly he is he is more his mind is more set on trying to move on from this instance than mildred's is but his mother just keeps drawing him back into this world yeah I think it's fair that that might be a change moment. Even even considering that, though, I think that in spite of what you might think that she might kill someone who was related to the murder at the beginning of the film, I think that this is still consistent with her character. Even if your perspective of her character has changed over the version of the film, I still don't think her characters, if that makes sense, like the kind of dichotomy between those two things. So, yeah, yeah. The, so, the two sides within her that are sort of battling throughout this movie, they're still battling at the end. I think that's a fair, fair... Um... Her right. interpretation of that and, final and, as well. Yeah, and your and your perspective on her inner demons might change over the course of the film, but not her inner demons themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So I I agree with you, though, back to the point about Frances McDormand's performance. It's masterful. I gave that one scene as an example. I think that she is a worthy candidate for uh, Best Actress at the Oscars. We'll see how she does in that category. But why yeah, don't we yeah, get... like I said, I think this is the best performance. Um, but also she has won before, so I mean I would I, I definitely wouldn't be sorry if someone else won, like Saoirse Ronan or Margot Robbie. Right. And I think that with that I think it's probably time to move on to Woody Harrelson's character, which we talked about a little bit in the context of Francis McDormand already. But Willoughby, he's not in the film for overly long. We've we've already kind of revealed that he does he does die about 40 to 45 minutes in the film, which is the scene that I was yeah. talking about where the film really changed for me. And I really was absorbed by it at that point when he commits suicide, actually. Who, what did you think of his 40 to 45 minutes on screen? And then also his, his presence in the film beyond that as well in the form of voiceover narration and, and these letters that he's left people. Yeah, I think he, Although he's not in the movie very long, I think he uh, he makes his mark. He he makes his his little screen time count. He really um, does. Because I, I think he's perfectly cast. First of all, because 
um, you know, he has a very tall task in this movie of trying to come on, establish this character, establish this person as sort of this guy who everyone loves in the town. He's kind of the, you know, the center of this community, really. Um, and then to die within a whole 40, 45 minute span. Um, and, you know, to really leave a mark, like you said, throughout the rest of this movie. Um, and I think he accomplishes that. And part of that is just who Woody Harrelson is in, as an actor. Um, he's just, he's one of the most charismatic actors out there, I think. Um, and it, it just doesn't take long um, for him to be on screen before, um, you know, the audience is with him. I don't, I, I, I really don't think he could ever play a, um, a full-blooded villain. Um, Although he, because... he does, though, in War for the Planet of the Apes. So Okay, well, I haven't seen that. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> so, um, I'm wrong. but uh, <laughs> Although, maybe he was terrible in that movie. I don't know. But uh, I didn't see it either, not. so I don't know. Um, but, yeah, he, you know, I think he's a perfect person to play this role um, as Chief Willoughby. Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, the, the complexity of the character, too, because he is someone you want to root for, and he's someone that everyone in the town seems to really have a connection with. But um, he uh, he has you know some moments of weakness as well. Um, he you know expresses some prejudice. Um, we see like some a little bit of racism, a little bit of homophobia, um, and he uh, he you know this is just a small thing, but like he curses in front of his children like um, pretty excessively and openly. Yeah, um, I did get a good laugh know? though the first time he did it. He apologized to them, yeah, which I thought yeah. was hilarious. But then he goes on to do it later, just like pretty unreservedly. So yeah. yeah, it's not something where you know a lot of people probably are like, oh, you know, are going to have such a negative reaction to the fact that he does that. But I think it did show that this character, you know, he has some weaknesses. Um, even you know, even if that's kind of a small one. Yeah. Um, I mean, he also commits but, suicide, yeah. which I think is is. I mean, as, as much as it's difficult, well, I mean, yeah. we can talk about how, you know, how mental health comes into play and how difficult it is. I think that this film, regardless of your own opinions about suicide, this film definitely portrays that as a negative thing. Yeah, and I think it goes along, too, with what, um, you know, what I was saying about this movie sort of being a tragedy. Um, and, you know, he is kind of the tragic hero in a way, um, even though, you know, like I said, he's not totally a hero, but, you know, in most tragedies, the hero is also not totally a hero. Um, but he he basically becomes the unwitting victim of something that he, he has no uh, ability to sort of fight against, um, and it ends, up, it ends up costing him his life. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, the letters, you know, I go back and forth on how I feel about the use of the letters in this movie, because I think it is kind of a a slightly heavy-handed way of yeah it is you know of making sure this character is remember stays a part of the movie even yep. after he dies yep um i think maybe there was just one too many letters um because <laughs> i mean how many times are there? like there's three i think aren't there there's i think yeah, yeah so there's the one to his wife i think wife there's, there's probably one to mildred and there's one to sam rockwell yeah i think there's also one to the to his kids as well but i don't know yeah well i you know i think maybe it was just one too many um but that being said, I think it's a great performance. Definitely deserving of the Oscar nomination. Yeah. In some, I, I, you might at this point know how I feel about voiceover narration in films. I'm not the biggest fan. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. This one, it worked. I, it's in the middle. It worked at times for me. I think that the one... You know, maybe it's not even that it worked at times. It might more be the fact that the letters were just too long. Like, maybe that's yeah, that what too, it is. That is true. Yeah, like, because I was going to say... Even, like, Mildred's letter and Sam Rockwell's 
and sorry, um, Dixon, Dixon, who's played by Sam Rockwell. Those letters like are necessary, I think, but it's weird, like how long they take up in the voiceover narration. Like it just felt like I a think, really long time. I think it works in the uh, in the scene with Dixon, uh, just because of what is going on in that scene and the sure. way that it builds the tension in that scene. But I agree, some of the other ones, you know, maybe they could have been trimmed down. Uh, yeah, I feel like my legal writing professor critiquing my um, my. Uh, writing assignments here you know you probably could have left out a few sentences <laughs> for sure <laughs> that's a that's a fair point it, it, it's a it's a nitpicky critique but i think for the character more generally and he this might be my favorite performance in the film they're all the, the three main performances are so good it's hard to it's hard to pick a winner almost yeah. if you're if you're comparing them because they're all amazing and they're all worthy of oscar nominations which they all received mm-hmm. but I just keep going back to how striking the scene is where he commits suicide to me, and I think that's that's what sets this this performance apart because I went in spoiler free in this film and totally did not see this coming at all. Yeah. Now, I might I might be just naive and not to not see this coming. I did think it was kind of strange that he was like having his kids out of school for this beach day, but I thought it was just a part of him having his cancer and coming to terms with that and kind of probably yeah. dying soon. But the scene where, you know, his wife is drunkenly asleep on the couch at the end of the day, and you don't realize how long it takes for him to write these letters, because it just kind of flips between them, and only then later does it go back to the letters, but then he goes out to the barn, lets the horses go, and then shoots himself in the head. It was such a moving scene, and there are several moving scenes in this film, but for me, this scene sticks out, and Woody Harrelson's performance, particularly in this scene sticks out to me yeah agreed and i think that um you know i did kind of think just from the moment you find out that he he has cancer that this character's probably going to die at some point just because that was the kind of movie that's the kind of movie that it is oh i definitely um, thought he was going to die i just didn't think it was yeah. going to be suicide at the end of this kind of really yeah, lovely exactly. day with his family even up until that scene even when the moment where he's letting the horses yeah yeah he goes, totally goes out to the barn i you know, I kind of had the feeling that something was about to happen there, but I didn't know if, you know, it was just he was going to kill over and die or, you know, whether he was going to actually take his own life. Um, yeah, it was but, only when he put the bag on his head did I realize yeah. that he was, that's yeah. what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah, because this is, I mean, this is the point in the film where, like I mentioned before, it the whole film changes for me. I took it, not even necessarily more seriously, but that scene struck me so to my core that a light switch flipped in my head and I was just really, really vibing with the film at that point and really in, engaged. Yes, I, I agree. It's a great performance. Yeah, so moving right along, and I think it makes sense to transition to this character now that we've talked about Woody Harrelson, but Sam Rockwell's character, I think we're going to spend a significant amount of time talking about this one, but we'll start with the performance before we slip to the character because they are very different things in my mind. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's an amazing performance. Like, um, Sam Rockwell, you know, sort of in the same way that um, that Woody Harrelson does, he has, like, a just a very natural charisma as an actor. And having seen him in, um, in other movies before, like in even, even recent movies, where he plays just really lovable characters, um, Laggies and The Way Way Back are a couple that I'm thinking about. Um, but he... You know, when he when he comes on screen, I instantly you know want to connect with him as a, as a, as an actor as a character. Um, I hope you but, didn't connect you know, with him in this one. Yeah, I was gonna say, that's not easy to do with this character um, because you know he's 
he's kind of a he's well he's not kind of he's a racist jerk like at the start of this movie um and you know he he a lot happens with his character which we'll talk about mm-hmm. um but um yeah as far as the performance goes i think um he changes along with the character i think it's uh, physically it's a good performance he gets the crap beat out of him um you know yep. obviously that just didn't happen um in real life but um you know, he. I think he he does a great job portraying sort of the the brokenness of this character, both physically and mentally. Um, by the end of the movie, uh, and you know, I didn't know where this character was going to go up until the very end. Um, you know, there's a moment where you think it might go one way, and it ends up going another way. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a, another fantastic performance in this movie. Agreed. I can't praise Sam Rockwell enough. As as much as I despise this character in this film. Not not in terms of like critically, but like who this character is as a person in this film. Yeah, uh, I am engaged by Sam Rockwell's performance, even in the moments where I'm repulsed by the character. In terms of yes. yeah, and and I, I could go on and on about Sam Rockwell's performance. So I think it maybe makes more sense just to shift to talk about the character. I think that when we you've already said rightfully so that this person is even putting it nicely i think <laughs> saying that he's a racist jerk like this guy is an unabashed racist who openly admits to beating and torturing black people and has absolutely no qualms about doing that to the point of literally talking about it in the street yeah and that is besides being deeply upsetting it's just difficult to it's difficult to even kind of, I don't know, Im- imagine this in reality. Although I know that people like this exist out there in the world today. I know that that is true. It's not, like, as much of this person, as much as this character seems like a caricature of someone in real life, at the be- especially at the beginning, I think that it, the reality is that these people do exist out there. Yes. And that's something that this film, I think, forces you to struggle with. And it's something that I struggled with throughout the film. That being said, I want to get to the more maybe controversial. I think you described it as controversial, rightfully Definitely. so. In the latter half of this film, after Willoughby commits suicide, leaves this note for Sam Rockwell, what some people have described as a tale of redemption, and I think um, other people have disagreed with that. And actually kind of termed it something else, if I understand this correctly. Almost a, a tale of, um, I don't even know what the right word is. but kind like, of Almost like apolog- apolog- apologism for this, for the racism of this character. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, I think the redemption is the, apolog- is the apologism for the character, actually. If you, if you think of this as a tale of redemption, it's an apology well, for racism. So but here's what I'll say. Um, Go ahead. Yep. And actually, I'm going to say... I want to read a quote that Martin McDonough had actually just this week. He spoke out for the first time about sort of the backlash of this movie Mm -hmm. um, and this character in particular. And what he says is, I don't think his character is redeemed at all. He starts off as a racist jerk. He's the same pretty much at the end, but by the end, he's seen that he's had to change, uh, that he has to change. There is room for it. And he has to a degree seen the error of his ways, but in no way is he supposed to become some sort of redeemed hero of the piece. And I honestly, I think that's the reaction that I've had to towards it. Um, and I, I think that the change, um, you know, the change that this character undergoes it, you know, in some ways, maybe it is abrupt, 
But in other ways, I think if you look at what his character goes through in this movie, you talk about he loses someone who is his role model in Chief Willoughby, like the you know the person he looks up to in life. He loses his job, um, which is basically the only thing that he has um, besides his mother. Um, like you know, he, he's obviously someone who loves being a police officer, and like you know, it, it gives him purpose in life, basically, um, even if that purpose is very twisted but not only does he lose his job but he loses it at the hands of a black man um this new chief who comes into um the office after willoughby dies and says basically says to dixon you know i'm done with your crap and takes his gun and badge away uh although not the badge because he couldn't find it he you know those things happen to him you know and then from a physical standpoint he almost dies first of all in the scene where mildred firebombs the police station and then you know almost dies again in the bar when he gets beat to hell by these guys um you know by the guy who you know he he initially suspects is the murderer and of course there's a there's a tactical reason for why he ends up getting beat to hell by this guy um to get the evidence but um you know still he goes through so much that i think you can't look at that character and say that he's going to be the same person after going through all of that um, and, and say that he hasn't learned something. And I, you know, I agree with what Mark McDonough said. Obviously, he's the director of the film. But, um, <laughs> but he, I, I don't think this character is a hero at all. Uh, I think that's, that's missing the point. Um, but I think it shows that even the, um, you know, the lowest of the low, a, a racist mama's boy, um, you know, who beats, beats black people, like, have the capacity for change. Um, and I don't yeah. think he fully undergoes that change. I don't know if he even will fully undergo that change. But like Martin McDonough said, I think he has understood that he is a broken person and that he needs to undergo a change, whether he, you know, actually will or not. Um, and I think that, um, you know, that says a lot about um, human nature and a lot about what makes this movie to me what why this movie has such a impact lasting impact with me long after the final credits roll i think that's fair and i also agree with what martin mcdonough has said to take it a step back i think that kind of the word that I, i've been sitting here and thinking about and trying to find to describe this like tale of redemption which martin mcdonough is denying that it's a tale of redemption i think it's fair to say yeah. And this other kind of tale of condemnation, in some sense. And I think that I see this as a tale of condemnation, and I think you do as well. And Martin McDonough's intentions seem to be that. And by this, I mean, he, you, you've perfectly described this his character going in toward these final scenes. And although I do think the change is abrupt still, I don't disagree with you about how like something has to change in this character, given on what's happened to him. The moment in the police station where he where he has this, where, I guess where this change is engaged, where he's reading this letter from Willoughby. Yeah. The kind of instantaneous nature of this change. And again, I, I even think that this is debatable, this is arguable, whether it's an instantaneous change or kind of a momentary instinct kind of thing that then spirals into sort of an ongoing change in his character. I think that, that for me it, it felt a little too abrupt. And that aside, I still think that this this change that you're describing is not fully realized is is a true statement. I think that you definitely can't say that he's a fully changed character by the end of this film. And the fact that he's going to Idaho with Mildred to kill this person who admittedly 
it sounds like has done something really terrible, like really, really terrible. That yes. I agree that, that doesn't make him a hero. And the fact that they're taking vigilante justice as their option is the condemnation aspect of it. I think it makes Mildred and uh, and Dixon this these characters who essentially are condemning themselves to this kind of vigilante justice to what you know some people might say is oh like yeah we're going to hell we're going to go kill these people and take them with us something like that and that being said that aside i think my issue with it is the fact that the it's open to interpretation as a tale of redemption and as much as we don't think that he is a hero it is, I think it is a reasonable interpretation of the film, even if it's the wrong one. I think it's open for interpretation that way, and I think that that is Martin McDonough's fault. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know. That, I, I'm, I'm going to disagree a little bit, but I don't think that that really is a reasonable interpretation just because I don't think – I mean, you know, look at what these characters are going to do. I mean, they're not going to – you know, commit some heroic act, you know, you know, save the damsel in distress from her magical castle. I mean, some people, I think it's a fair interpretation to like, to say that you're going to go like rid the world of someone who is like a gang rapist is like a, is a heroic act. I think that is a fair interpretation of that, even if it's the wrong one. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just think that the act of, yeah, even so, even, even though he is a, a horrible gang rapist, um, Maybe, maybe he is, maybe he's not. Um, you know, there's some indication that maybe he's just bragging. Sure, um, fair, fair, fair. Um, I, I don't know. I just feel like the act of murder, um, in any circumstances, um, as a moviegoer, I'm not going to look at that and say these characters are going to do some heroic deed. Um, and maybe that's uh, maybe that's too uh, Superman esque of me, but um, sure. to, to I feel think... that way. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I. You know, I don't, I don't think that it's impossible to interpret the movie that way. Um, but to me, um, you know, that I think I think if you inter- do interpret it that way, you're kind of looking for a reason to be angry about what happens. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I do. I as much as I don't, as much as I don't interpret the film this way, for me, I can understand the interpretation of the film this way. I can I can believe someone when they say that like. Oh, it seems it seems like a redeeming quality if this person is almost giving their life to acquire DNA evidence to prove that this this person is is the man who raped and murdered Mildred's daughter. Like that is it's not it, it's heroic not in a not in a way that we think of as heroism, but in terms of like oh like this person is doing a good deed. And that being said, like bad people bad people are capable of good deeds. Like that's just the reality and complexity of human nature as much as we don't like to wrestle with that. Yeah. And I, at the same time, it's tricky to have this unabashed racist be allowed to take on a, a heroic role in the film. A heroic role not in the sense of that we normally think about it, but in the sense of doing good deeds. Like that's a difficult thing to wrestle with and I can understand people's criticism of the film in that way because it's not like we don't need to be told that like like i'll rephrase this society doesn't need to be told that like people who torture black people and enjoy it can do good things like that's not something that's not looking for something to be upset about i don't think like that's that's just a tough reality of this film that yeah, people don't like I, about I don't it. know just just to me i don't think that um in any circumstances it's right to look at what they're going to do and say this is this is a heroic deed um 
And, you know, Fair I mean, I think this disagreement explains why this movie has been so divisive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's been a good, it's, and it's been it's a good discussion. It's definitely controversial. Um, yep. So, yeah. Yep. And I think it is a good discussion. Nevertheless, it's good to get both sides out there. And at the end of the day, I do want to say that I, I lean toward the interpretation. I mean, he's the director of the film. He, he meant it this way, but I leaned, I took the interpretation of the redemption of the, sorry, the condemnation at the end, because at the end of it, which we're going to talk about now, why don't we just go ahead and talk about the ending? Um, the ending is really something where I'm like, you know, maybe there, there, there's a slight moment of questioning, which we've already talked about where they ask, is this really going to, is this, I forget you, you said the line earlier, but I've forgotten the line. Is it uh, it's something like, uh, they don't know whether it's going to make them feel better. They basically just say, are you sure? Are we sure? You sure about this? Right. And they both say no. Right. And you know, so there's that, there's that hesitation, but, but there's two people driving to Idaho to kill this person that has beaten Sam Rockwell Dixon up in the bar and because it's it sounded like he has done something similar to someone else even if it's not mildred's daughter i think that that's a dark it's a dark road to be driving down quite literally and um it really felt like a moment of accepting the fact that they're not trying to be good people at least if they're trying to be quote good people it's a very warped demented kind of good yeah i agree with that i agree I don't know if you have any other thoughts about the ending because I think we've we've talked about it already, but I'm just gonna give you a chance to say your piece about it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't I didn't get that it was overly preachy. You know, you say we we don't need to be told that um, you know people who torture black people and all that need to uh, be. Oh, I don't think uh, that about the ending. I'm think I'm talking about like scenes before the ending. That's not really what I'm uh, talking oh, about. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. just to finish my thought, um, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that the movie is telling us, or if it is telling us, I don't think it's being heavy-handed about it. I think it's a lot more subtle um, than maybe both of us have given it credit for. Um, maybe. But, but yeah, that's that's uh, I guess that's my thoughts on the movie in general. Cool. Well, I think that was a pretty thorough discussion. As we wrap yes. up here, what was your favorite scene or moment from Three Billboards? That's a tough call. I really think the scene in the dentist office is, is a, uh, maybe the funniest scene. Or no, actually, so the second funniest scene. And the funniest scene um, is probably the one I'm going to go with just because it's something a scene that we haven't talked about yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when when Mildred goes on a date with um, Peter Dinklage's character. Um, and yeah. it's, uh, they end up running into Mildred's ex-husband, um, played by John Hawks, who's there with sort of his ditzy... Um, uh, 20-year-old girlfriend, now, wife, or, I don't know, even know, yeah. Girlfriend or whatever, but... Um, 20 years old, like half his age. Do what? I just want to say, clarify for the listeners out there that, that his girlfriend is half his age, if you haven't seen the film. Yeah, she's, she's literally like 18. And yeah. she's like, works at it, or used to work at a zoo. Um, but, but yeah, but it, there's just some really funny lines in it, and I wish I could remember now, um, but, uh, but there's a moment where John Hawks' character comes over to the table and says... Oh, my girlfriend just said blah 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 blah, and at some point, at some point in the whatever he's saying, he uses like sort of a uh, you know an SAT word, a bigger word, and Peter Dinklage's character goes, "Really?" She said that word. I can't think <laughs> what the word is right now, but it's, yeah. it's it was a great line. It made me laugh. Although, side note, um, I was laughing throughout this movie, but like both times when I went to see it, like. It was dead in the theater. Like, there were a lot of people both times, but no one was laughing. And I think people were scared to laugh because of how dark this movie is. Um, yeah. 
but I definitely think it has a lot of humor in it. So if you if you're you know on the fence about seeing it because you think it's going to be too dark, just know that it does have a lot of humor in it. Yeah, that's a good scene. I'm glad you gave a shout out to Peter Dinklage. We didn't really talk about him at all. I think his yeah, he, he does a great job. Yeah, it's a small role. He does a very good job playing it though. And so my favorite scene from the film is going to also give a shout out to a character we haven't talked about yet, uh, Caleb Landry Jones. And this yes. is immediately after, uh, I think not maybe not immediately, but very shortly after Willoughby dies. Uh, this is the scene that stuck out with me the to me the most in terms of cinematography because it's a one shot. And I'm I'm a sucker for good one shots. Yeah. And Sam Rockwell's character goes across the street from the police station after he finds out that Willoughby has died, and beats up Caleb Landry Jones' character, whose name I'm currently him out the window. Yeah. Yeah. You know, beats him up. His name's Red, I believe. Red Willoughby. Yeah, Red. Yeah. He beats Red up, and he was the, and to, for context, Red is the person who has sold Mildred the rights to the billboards that yes. that are out on the highway, and he beats Red up, throws him out the window, and then kicks him in the street. Afterwards, his office is on a second floor, so he throws him a whole story down the, down, and uh, the film, the, sorry, the scene is is a one shot, which like I've already mentioned, I'm a sucker for, and it was a beautifully shot scene. Um, it, it it resonates with Sam Rockwell's fantastic performance. Whatever your thoughts are on the character himself, uh, the character itself, but it was a great scene in my book. Very good. Yeah, very evocative. I agree. All right, final words here. What what score are you going to give Three Billboards? So I mentioned that I think I like this movie a little bit more the second time I saw it. Um, and I actually had I, Tanya, I believe, higher on my list of the year's best movies. Uh, but I'm going to give Three Billboards a 9.5, which is a little bit higher than I gave to I, Tanya. Um, I think that this is one of the three best movies of last year. Um, and, you know, I think I've... I think I've, I've well and truly said why at this point. Um, I feel that way, so I'll just say 9.5. I think it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, I'm a little bit more negative on the film, um, maybe a, more than just a little bit. I'm going to go with an 8.6. I think that this film does a lot, and it does a lot really, really, really well. Um, Martin McDonough's shortcomings in terms of his directing, yeah, I mean, it, it, it just wasn't it wasn't the best that we've seen. That being said, the acting more than makes up for it. I'm a little bit more negative on the score than you are, it sounds like, which also was a little bit of a detractor. And yeah. um, Francis McDormand's character development, which I noted earlier in this film, is something that also holds this film back. Still very good film. 8.6 might even be a bit low, but um, that's, that's the score I'm going with. All right. Cool. So, like I mentioned, this is a thorough dis- dissection of uh, one of the Academy Awards favorites for this year. Uh, whether you end up loving it or not, it's a movie definitely worth seeing. Uh, I would recommend it to anyone that I come across. But let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing what is allegedly Daniel Day-Lewis's final film, Phantom Thread. Back in a sec. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Next on the docket, we have Paul Thomas Anderson's latest film and his second and potentially last collaboration with Daniel Day-Lewis, who has said he is retiring after this movie, which, of course, is Phantom Thread. Phantom Thread is a period drama set in the 1950s in London, starring Daniel Day-Lewis in the leading role of the renowned but enigmatic seamstress Reynolds Woodcock. 
as well as Leslie Manville as his sister Cyril Woodcock and Vicky Crapes, his troubled lover. Scott, I texted you when I walked out of this film telling you about something that a woman sitting behind me in the theater uttered at one point towards the end of the film. Quote, this is too much. Did you think that this film was too much? And what are your general impressions of this one? Uh, I thought it was, um, I think this is a great movie. Um, And I did not think it was too much, to be honest with you. I think, um, and maybe that's just my experience with a lot of tonally similar films. I think, think, you know, the, the category that this movie um, falls into probably is the gothic romance category uh, and having taken a course in gothic romance in college um, you know I am familiar with stories like this and I know that um, the melodrama is like an essential element to all of these stories um, and so you know for me I was I was more than happy to go along with the ride and the really twisted uh, stuff that happens particularly towards the end of this movie um, so for me it was not too much um, I think this movie is very uh, leisurely paced um, oh yeah you know that's putting it um, kindly it's very at slow two hours and 10 minutes it you know it could have been 20 minutes shorter probably at least um, but at the same time I think there are some fantastic scenes I think the there are really there are really only three characters, three, three major characters in the movie. I think all three actors um, do a great job, um, and we'll talk about their performances in a little more detail. I think the score is uh, stunning by Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead, um, and I think Paul Thomas Anderson does what he always does and somehow takes a niche subject, something that I didn't think I would ever be interested in, and renders it like mesmerizing. Uh, so I, yeah, I, this was, I was pretty, I'm not going to say it took my breath away, but it came close at certain points. Yeah. This, this film calling it leisurely paced as being kind. I think that it is an incredibly slow film, especially to start out with that being said, when it, when it really kicks into gear and it's big, well for this film set pieces, uh, when it hits those set pieces, it really, uh, it really does some work. I think, and although there's no action in this film, there are scenes that you can point to where everything is ratcheted up. And unlike some movies where we watch where it's then not ratcheted back down, this film does turn it back down before it goes on to its next set piece. And some of this film did feel like feel like filler. Not that it, I mean that being said, like there has to be some filler for the relationship between Daniel Day Lewis's character uh, Woodcock. And Alma, who is played by Vicky Crepes. Uh, yeah, Vicky Crepes. But I just, yeah, I'm like you. I can't, I couldn't, going, walking into this film, I couldn't imagine being interested by 1950s dressmaking. But Paul Thomas Anderson and the work of, the, the magic, I shouldn't say work, the magic of Daniel Day-Lewis's acting is yes. something that you just cannot overlook ever. As much whether you like Paul Thomas Anderson, I know he's a very divisive director. Um, whether you like him or not, and the work that he produces, this film was engaging to say the least. Yeah, and I think just quickly about the pace um, and about the fact. I think yeah, I think you're right. I think there is some filler, but you know, thinking about it in the grand uh, scheme of the movie, I think it makes sense that you know it does take us a, a while to ease into the story because when you th- especially when you think about the character of reynolds woodcock played by daniel day lewis um, because his whole thing at the start of this movie is how mannered and how routine and how you know he's obviously a perfectionist and how perfect everything has to be um 
you know, yeah, obsessively, at every, obsessively at every moment so. to his day. Yep. You know, the the movie has this, you know, very strict order to it for for the beginning for the um, first hour or so, and I think that's why maybe it feels like it's um, it's moving slowly. And I mean, yeah, it is moving slowly a little bit. I won't lie, um, but then you know, we see the way that Alma, this woman who he starts to maybe fall in love with. Um, in a, in a dark sort of way. Um, this is Muse. She's his yes, Muse to start exactly. out with. Slowly, sorts, slowly starts to disrupt his carefully structured um, universe. And at the same time as that starts to happen, the movie itself starts to go into some uh, different territory. So I think, it, I think it makes sense to some extent, but it still probably could have been 20 minutes shorter. Yeah, and you mentioned Johnny Greenwood's score. The score is something that struck me throughout this film. It's fantastic. You said... Three Billboards might be your pick for the best original score. It's, it's a close call. It's a yeah. close call. I think for me it might be this one. This this film, the score is spectacular. Johnny Greenwood, like, he, you know, this is the third movie of Paul Thomas Anderson's that he has scored. Um, and, of course, but, of course, you know, he's mainly known for being the, the guitarist for Radiohead. Um, but, I, you know, I didn't think he had this kind of score in him um, because There Will Be Blood has this really sort of menacing string strings throughout. It may, make up most of the, the his score for that movie. And then Inherent Vice, which is the other movie that he scored, um, is sort of like, like stoner rock. You know, it really matches the tone of that film. Um, but, you know, I did not know that he, he had such a grand sort of lush orchestral score within him but i think he matches uh the tone of this movie and the whole atmosphere of this movie perfectly with that score and sort of the very melancholic piano that goes throughout a lot of the scenes in the movie i think i saw something uh or read something or saw a review where they said that like there's music in like 80 or 90 minutes of this movie um so you know that's that's part of the brilliance of it, I think, is that sometimes you don't even know it's there. It just blends in with the scenery so well. Um, so yeah, huge credit to Johnny Greenwood. Yeah, it was an it was an integral part of the film. I mean, I couldn't tell you how many minutes there was score in the film, but yeah. it felt ever present in a very positive way for me. Yeah. It fit with the tone of the film so well, and yeah, I can't praise it enough. I think everything you've described fits well, and it's it would be my pick, I think, for this category. At the Oscars, and by my pick, I mean it would be what I would want to win, not necessarily what right. I think will win, um, right? For sure. But, all right, so we've kind of talked no spoilers so far, and now I do want to take the gloves off and allow for spoilers to to be thrown out. So again, if you're planning on seeing this film in the near future and would like to avoid spoilers, check the time codes, skip forward to the next part. But now the uh, yeah, nothing's off limits here. So let's talk about Daniel Day Lewis's Reynolds Woodcock. Enigmatic is how I described him kind of in our opening, and I think that is putting it kindly, maybe. He's obsessive in... You've described his, his routine, his, his ironed-out schedule that has to be perfectly fit moment by moment, or his day is ruined. I think even Cyril, uh, played by Leslie Manville, at the point the film says it's impossible for him to recover if his breakfast isn't perfectly to his routine. And Side note on that, he... There's so much breakfasting that happens in this movie. Like, I'm not sure if there's another movie which has so much uh, 
of people eating breakfast, so much breakfast food involved in this movie. The first scene where he meets Alma at yeah. the restaurant, yeah. he orders it's perhaps disturbing. the most breakfast food that has ever been ordered in a movie. And I don't know, it just struck me as odd and kind of funny. But I, I, I agree, it goes along with sort of his routine. Like, you know, you have to start with this perfect breakfast. If, if the breakfast is ruined, then everything is ruined. Yeah, I think he ordered a Welsh rabbit with a poached egg on top, not too runny. And then uh, he ordered, like, bacon, sausage, scones, jam, butter. Yeah. Like, oh, it was ridiculous. anything you can think of. Yeah, seriously, it was insane. Um, But anyway, so this enigmatic, obsessively routined person. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis is a master at his art. It's a real shame if he does retire after this film. But what did you think of his performance? I mean, what can you say? Like, he he is more immersive as an actor than any maybe any actor ever um he he never once do you feel like you are watching daniel day lewis you always feel like you are watching whatever character he is playing whether it's bill the butcher daniel plainview abraham lincoln all of these iconic characters um that he has played um you know he makes them what they are but at the same time you know he's such a he has such a reputation that it would be so easy for you know, kind of like we talked about last week with Meryl Streep or Tom Hanks. I don't want to say phone it in because I don't think that that's what they do, but to sort of use their star power to glide um, through these roles. But I don't think he does that at all. Like, I think he fully immerses himself into this character uh, of Reynolds Woodcock. Um, and I think that, there, you know, this is a – it's sort of a quieter movie, I would say, in terms of there's not um, as much dialogue. So I think it calls on him to do a lot more – with his body language, with his face. Um, and I think he does that um, beautifully. And one um, scene where uh, I'll, I'll point to specifically is when he, there's a scene where he comes home um, and Alma basically has sent everyone away um, and she's made him a surprise dinner that he was not expecting. And he doesn't say much in the scene, but there's just close-ups on his face, and he just so perfectly portrays the conflict that is going on in Reynolds, because at the same time, he, like, wants to appreciate what Alma has done for him, and, you know, the fact that um, she's showing affection for him in such a open and honest way, but at the same time, you know, his his order and his world as he knows it has been disrupted and he's disgusted by it and he's absolutely disgusted by it yeah uh you know and and you know so the way that like facially um what he does is you know he just portrays the conflict so well until like you said you know he just comes out and he can't he can no longer hide the fact that he he's disgusted by it yeah i think of that moment that you're pointing to as the first real set piece of the film as kind of what yeah. I was alluding to earlier and to talk about Daniel Day-Lewis's performances you mentioned all these past roles he's had and There Will Be Blood and Last of the Mohicans and Lincoln and you know Gangs of New York and yeah. I'm, I'm leaving films out but he is I think your comparison to what we were talking about last week with The Post and Meryl Streep and Tom, and Tom Hanks is, is a really good point to make and I, and I want to kind of extend that a step further and say he is someone who never plays the same role. You may find yes, yes. you may find the same, you know, sh- acting strokes and moments in each film, but never have I walked away from a Daniel Day-Lewis film and saying, "Oh, that's exactly what I that that's that's Daniel Day-Lewis in a sense of like a stereotypical performance for him other than the fact that it's absolutely spectacular." You, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, my critique last week with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep was that I think they play it safe, um, and I don't think that Daniel Day Lewis is someone who ever does this. I mean, you know, he's sixty years old now, and he's he's starring in gothic romances about dressmaking in nineteen fifties England um, with you know no other name actors in the movie really. I mean, this is this is sort of the antithesis to the Post in a lot of ways. Um, so I think that really speaks to speak to what he's able to do as an actor. Yeah, and. The scene that we've talked about already is a perfect example of his of his range going from the the nonverbal aspect of the scene, and then transitioning into into his you know almost cringeworthy art like argument and yelling at Alma cringeworthy in the sense that like it is cringeworthy oh, yeah yeah he's treating her so poorly yeah and yeah. not in the sense that it's bad quality exactly no. exactly and. I mean, it's it's amazing to have that kind of range, period, and it's amazing to have that range in the same scene. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, we I, again, I can't say enough about it, um, and and that's just one example of it yeah. in the movie. I think you know he portrays the conflict uh, so well within this character throughout the entire movie. Yeah, we'll save the other, I think, really, really outstanding moment of his acting in the film for the very end because it is the ending of the film. When we talk about that, we'll talk about Daniel Day Lewis's performance in that. And so on that note, why don't we go ahead and shift briefly to the supporting actresses in this film, both of whom I think do a very good job, although only Leslie Manville received a nomination, which I think you maybe mentioned last week was a surprise that Vicky Crepes wasn't the one who got nominated. And yeah, I, I think a, a lot of people felt, you know, maybe it wasn't as big of a surprise as a lot of people were talking um, about Vicky Crepes' performance more than they were Leslie Manville's, just because... She's in so many scenes along with Daniel Day-Lewis um, and, like, goes toe-for-toe for with him, which is, like, hard for any actor to do, practically impossible for any actor to do, let alone someone who we've barely ever seen in a movie. Like, I, you know, I, I haven't looked through her credits, but I feel fairly certain that I've never seen her movie in a movie, and this may, may even be one of her first films. Um, so, yeah, very accomplished performance. Yeah, she only started acting in 2008, and I'm just t- quickly taking a spin through her filmography. I don't see anything that I recognize, although she's apparently going to be in the reboot of the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is the girl in the spider's web. Uh, I don't know what role she's playing in that, but apparently she's in that movie. But yeah, it's one of it's her first kind of big film, and, and to say that she goes toe-to-toe with Daniel Day-Lewis is completely fair in my book. I found her performance, especially in the back half of the film, after you really kind of begin to understand her character and how troubled she is, I'm thinking maybe particularly in the last 30 to 40 minutes of the film, is, because she isn't asked to do very much before them besides be this kind of person who is Daniel Day-Lewis, Reynolds Woodcock's muse, in a way, but then when she's really made a more complex character in what she's doing on screen, when she's poisoning Daniel Day-Lewis's character... And in this multiple times. multiple times in this incredibly demented, not just to kill him. I mean, that's demented enough, but specifically to gain his affection and make him need her. And one that is a huge revelation in the film that that this is this is how troubled Alma is. Well, let me ask you then, since you said, since you bring that up, um, do you think that this was her plan all along, or do you think that? living with Reynolds became so unbearable that these are the links that she had to turn to. I think that it's kind of neither. 
to, in a way. Okay. I think it's, or, or a mix of the two is maybe a better way, to, a more kind okay, of way yeah. to put it. I think that it's, I mean, so in the beginning of the film, you see the kind of the, the precursor to uh, to Alma, this this woman who's sitting at the breakfast table uh, at the beginning of the yeah. film. and Joanna, I think maybe is her name. I can't even remember her name. Um, yeah. She's only, I mean, it's the only scene she's in. Yes. And, you know, it's the precursor to Alma. Like I said, he finishes this dress. He gets his, so Woodcock gets his sister Cyril to fight, to ask her to leave. And he goes off to the countryside on vacation and brings back Alma. And you see it in this that unbearable is, is like maybe one way to describe it. But what it really is, is you, you think your relationship, and by you I mean Alma and Joanna, if that is her name in this film, you know, you think that your relationship with Reynolds is one thing. You think it's you think it's two way. It's a two way street, not a one way street. But in reality, it's not a transaction. It's you get to live with him, and you are his muse, and you don't get anything in return for that, right? Yeah. And in that sense, it's not that it's it's unbearable. I will rephrase this. It's unbearable, maybe in the sense that you might love Reynolds Woodcock, but he does not love you. Yes, and it's another, and so in that sense, I can't say that this was her plan all along. I think that, I mean, if that if that is true, if Paul Thomas, if, yeah, if Paul Thomas Anderson's intention was that, that he didn't convey that very well. Yeah. Um, but it's it's interesting that this is that she then lands on this this act of poisoning him, right? Because that's pretty messed up. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's interesting that you mention. And the, the, the reason I ask that question is because you talk about how, you know, she makes him need her in order to sort of win him back. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that, that that, I mean, that is what happens. But, you know, I, I, it's just interesting to think about how much of that was her intent and how much of that, you know, is just sort of her seeing how things play out. Because I don't know, you know, if she oh, I see what you're saying how, how, um, what, you know exactly how Reynolds was going to, you know, react to the poison. Like, you know, was this going to make him need her more, or was it going to make him lash out at her more, like he lashes out at the doctor who, you know, comes to try to treat him? Um, so I understand what yeah. you're saying now. Yeah, I think that it's weird. That's a weird thing to think about because she certainly acts in a methodical way after yeah. after he, you know, collapses while viewing the dress and and like messes the dress up and re- requiring his his workers and his sister to take yeah. over and work, you know, crazy hours to get the dress done. And but the way she responds to that almost seems like that was her plan and at the same I, time there's no way that she could predict that that is how it was going to play out. Well, I agree though because I think that you know she she's very careful. We see her very caref- carefully measuring out the mushrooms, and she looks up all this information about the mushrooms. I feel like, you know, maybe this is a this is a simplistic way of thinking about it. But if she wasn't trying to do something like this, then why doesn't she just kill him? Like if if she is thinking if, if living with him in this in this uh, current state has become so hard for her, then like you know. You can just kill him, uh, you know, and maybe if she puts more of the mushrooms in, that's all it took. But, you know, it does seem like she made a conscious effort to not kill him. Um, and, you know, maybe anticipating, probably anticipating that this was going to be what was going to happen. 
Yeah, my only other al- reasonable alternative that she might have had in her mind was, I'm maybe getting the the timeline of the movie mixed up here, so correct me if you think I'm off. Mm-hmm. But I think at this point she has gained Cyril's respect because there's like this whole subplot of whether or not Cyril respects Alma as like yes. a, a person, and I think. If it's the case that at this point she has the full respect of Cyril, then there is maybe a, a potential kind of way this plays out in her mind where, okay, I'm not trying to kill him, but even if he does die, Cyril's going to be in charge of the business now. And I'm respected enough where I could almost maybe supplant him as kind of the creative lead of this. That's a stretch, and I don't believe that. I... I... I don't disagree with that interpretation, honestly. And I was going to comment on the fact that um, the relationship between her and Cyril, because I think, you know, the thing that makes Cyril's character connect with her so much is there is like a rebellious sort of um, streak in Alma that we see. Like she, from the beginning, even she, she's not going to just be totally pushed around by Reynolds and I think that Cyril connects with that because she is the one person in Reynolds' life who can stand up to him and, um, you know, can get through to him and can, you know, even disrupt his routine. Um, you know, she has, I, I, she doesn't have control over him, um, but she can go toe to toe with him and he is someone that, she is someone that he respects. Um, and I think that's a big credit to Leslie Manville's performance. I mean, um, the the one scene I'm thinking of is where they're at the breakfast table, of course, because that's where they are in half the movie. But um, <laughs> yeah. but the woman who um, is having her wedding, uh, I can't remember what her name is, and but um, you know, she basically says to Daniel Day Lewis that you know this woman is having her wedding, wants you to make a dress or whatever, and Daniel Day Lewis like is clearly not having it. And she just basically sticks it to to him and says, like, she's not ha- she's not putting up with this crap. Um, and, you know, he does end up doing it. So I think that um, that is why we kind of see the relationship between um, Alma and Cyril, you know, blossom as this movie goes on. I mean, Cyril even says, I think, at one point that, like, you know, I like her. Like, I, I like Alma or something to that effect. Um, yeah. So I does. think that, you know, they, they both have this... Um, ability to stand up to Reynolds, uh, although in different ways and with different differing degrees of success. Yeah, I believe that the person you're referring to with the, the wedding dress is Lady Baltimore, maybe? Yeah. That could yeah. be. I mean, there's several different scenes with involving wedding dresses throughout this film, so maybe it's hard to... Yes, yes. To, to, I'm, I'm speaking about the woman who passes out and they go steal the dress off of her while she's asleep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's actually kind of a... a humorous scene this is not a humorless movie on that note there are some like, oh yeah i laughed openly during funny this film. moments yeah and speaking of that scene which i do believe is lady baltimore I, yeah. I that is the moment that is the first moment i think where reynolds woodcock begins to have respect for alma this kind of moment yes. where he yes. appreciates her this is before any of the poisoning takes place and it's it, i think it's those moments kind of following that dedication and that kind of connection with Reynolds work that drives their their being Alma's and Reynolds relationship drives yeah yeah so it like drives the positive feelings positive emotions in Alma which then leads her to to poisoning Reynolds later when those emotions and feelings and connection kind of uh fade a little bit yeah because at the same time 
she he is gaining respect for her but it's almost it's still because she's basically just fueling his ego because the thing which she says is oh this woman is not worthy of wearing your dress basically and so you know she's literally fueling his ego and telling him what he wants to hear and what he wants to believe about himself which is that um you know his creations are you know the greatest thing on planet earth and it takes a very special kind of person to be able to wear a Reynolds Woodcock dress. Um, so even when their relationship is going through the, its positive stages, you still see that, you know, at his heart, it, at the heart, he's the only person that he really cares about. And when Alma can't give him that sort of reinforcement, he turns against her. Yeah, when, when she challenges his routine and challenges his, yeah. his worldview, that's when, exactly like you say, turns against her. And I think a moment of challenging that worldview is the end of the film. And I think that let's spend a few minutes here talking about the ending, which we have, for the most part, avoided until now. All right, so the ending of the film, which, as demented as some parts of the of the film before this have been, is the scene kind of in the countryside where they first, I believe kind of where they first met, uh, out in his kind of remote yeah. castle, mansion, whatever you want to call it. And she's preparing dinner for him. And it's another moment of her poisoning him before she had put these kind of mushroom shavings in his tea, these poisonous mushrooms. This time, she's preparing him dinner, preparing an omelet for him. Or maybe breakfast, even. I don't even know. And yeah, it was an omelet. That's it was an omelet. I, I kind of assumed it was dinner, but it definitely was an omelet, so it probably was yeah. breakfast, given your point about breakfast earlier. That's true, yeah. Another <laughs> breakfast scene. Yeah. And she puts these mushrooms in the omelet these poisonous mushrooms and then serves it to him and this for the most part silent scene where most of the work is done non-verbally spectacular from both of them too i must add and you know she sits there at the table next to him watches him slowly finally get around to picking up his utensils cutting the omelet putting it in his mouth and with the food in his mouth, chewing it, she gives this, you know, chilling monologue about how she wants him weak and subservient to her so that she can bring him back to health, take his stress away. And then poison him again. And then poison, and then start the whole process again after <laughs> he makes a new dress and becomes, you know, evil towards her. And what a scene! Yeah, I mean, I think that you've you've uh, you've summed it up pretty uh, pretty brilliantly. And I mean, you know, the fact that Daniel Day Lewis, that Reynolds Woodcock, understands what's going on, and it, yeah, it's clear he understands before she even gives the speech. Yeah, and he's like, "Okay, let's do it," and swallows the omelet. Like it, it was incredible. It was an incredible scene. It really was. It, it's just it was an interesting character or interesting like place for this character to go to. Um, and you know, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think it's an amazing moment in the movie, like an amazing visceral moment. Um, but you know, I'm still I'm still mulling over what exactly it means for this character, and you know why Daniel Day Lewis does decide to that he's gonna um, you know just basically surrender to this to this plan of hers. Maybe it's just that he can't see himself 
being able to live with Alma basically in any other any other way. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's like I said, it's it's a visceral moment and one that still has me um, thinking about it a lot. Yeah, I mean, granted, it's it's pretty recent for me since I saw this film, um, and I'll be interested to see how how it sticks with me. But right now, I can't. I'm like you. I just can't stop thinking about what it, I don't know yet how I really feel about this scene in terms of exactly how you described it, how, what it means for Woodcock's character and why, as you put it, why he goes along with this. I mean, other than the fact that he is in, he is a demented person and in some ways it might feed back into this routine of his, you know, we've described this daily routine and this is like a professional routine, right? He makes a dress that is beautiful, that he's proud of, that he gives to some really famous or rich person to be married in. And then you know, he hits this depression. You see this depression kind of early on in the film that Alma kind of takes care of him during. I don't know if, if you've maybe forgotten this scene because it's a very brief one, but there's a scene where he finishes the first dress after Alma joins him where he goes up to the cabin and is depressed and you have this kind of conversation going on between between Alma and the doctor, which has kind of been ongoing throughout the film, which is kind of set aside from the from the story that's been pushing forward by itself. And, and she talks about how he gets these depressed states after he finishes a dress and it lasts for a few days and then he recovers and goes back to work. And in some ways, this is almost amplifying those moments of depression and offering him a solution to that depression that also involves love in this really demented way. And that's the that's what I have come to as explaining this so far. But I'm still wrestling with it, kind of like you. I don't know how that explanation resonates with you. I think that that's a great explanation of it. And I didn't even think about the aspect of yeah, actually, what he's surrendering himself to is a routine in a really twisted sort of way. Um, so yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. What you're saying about he can live in this mannered, ordered world like he has been. But that can coexist with love, and and because I think he does ultimately he he does develop some feelings for Alma in the end. Oh, um, I a hundred percent agree. Even if it's really twisted and demented, and, and even yeah. transactional in a way that we don't like to think about love, I think he does develop what he would what he would call love at the end of this film. So yeah, I think I think you very well may have nailed it. That's not something that I. Uh, it's not a, you know an interpretation that I thought about, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I'm still wrestling with it. I'm still trying to flesh that out, and I think I'm going to be thinking about this ending for a really long time because you know we mentioned some humor in this film, and this is actually yeah. in the in the point in the film where the lady behind me said this is too much. It's actually the scene that technically isn't the final scene, but there's a scene right after it where he's like puking his guts out in the bathroom yeah. and like ha- talking with Alma about like oh like. Maybe you should leave the room now because I'm about to vomit everywhere. <laughs> and that was when she said, the girl, lady behind me said it was too much. And that okay, was a ridiculous yeah. scene. And, and, it, and talk about humor at odd times in the film. Yeah. But yeah, that's the ending and, and what an ending it was. I think I'm going to not be coy at all and say that that was my favorite moment in the film. The, the last scene because it's just such a, it's such a wonderful scene in all respects. But I don't know if you have a different favorite scene or moment from... Yeah, so my favorite scene or the one that, that sticks out to me um, is this completely silent scene um, that takes place right after Alma and Reynolds have gotten married and where they are 
I guess on their honeymoon or, you know, they've gone off on some retreat and they're at eating breakfast, of course. And they really, I mean, you know, I thought it before. I thought there are a lot of breakfast scenes, but the more we talk about it, like 75% of this movie is people eating breakfast, but um, they're, and they're at breakfast and Alma is like buttering her toast or something in a really like, um, aggressive way <laughs> yeah loud and, and like we we already know that it is something that drives reynolds yeah it's what she did the first scene. time yeah it's what she and did in the first scene the first breakfast yeah. scene with him where and then cyril afterwards said you can't do that again and she hadn't done it again since then. there have been several breakfast yeah. scenes since then and this is the first time she does it again and she does it and then she takes a bite out of like you know a really crunchy bite or something and you know you just see his face and just like the disapproval in it. Yep. I mean, it's just such a beautiful moment of foreshadowing for the rest of this movie. And you just know, even though they've just gotten married, it seems like things are great. You just know things aren't going to work out. Um, at least not in a happy ending sort of, you know, way that we've come to expect from romantic dramas. Yeah. Um, well, and so I think that, you know, and, and the, the silence of the scene adds to it so beautifully. Yeah. Well, strangely enough, this this film did end in a in a very twisted, happy way. I think I yeah. think that I, it, it's it it's impossible to say that this film didn't end on a quote unquote happy note, even if that happy yeah, note is not the way we were expecting. Exactly, exactly. All right. Well, let's see if you give a you give a positive score to this film. What are you going to give Phantom Thread? Uh, I actually think I liked it more as we've been talking about it, and I liked it a lot when I saw it. Um, so I'm going to give this movie a nine point I think it's one of the best movies of last year. I agree. I, I I mentioned to you off air that this is a film that I do not want to see again. Period. Yeah. I don't need any more time with it, even if I do, even if I am going to think a lot about it. Um, but for me, this is I'm I'm with you. This is one of the best films of last year. If it counts as a film from last year, it technically released. Yeah. It, its wide release wasn't wasn't until this year. But uh, I'm going to give this film pretty much the same score you have, but slightly higher. Nine point one. I think this film is is masterful in what it does um it could be yeah. better in, in in little instances like we mentioned how it was probably a bit too long and and maybe there was a little bit too much filler too many breakfast scenes maybe but uh, a 9.1 is <laughs> is a 9.1 is is definitely the least that this movie deserves in my book yeah so. yeah and just briefly want to say that paul thomas anderson needs to stay paid because he's one of the best doing it he's been one of the best doing it since boogie nights um, and he just takes subject matter, whether it's like, you know, the oil world, like, which is what he takes on in there will be blood or this cult and the master or, or, you know, the world of high fashion here, um, brings such a, a detail and authenticity and such a craft to every story that he tells that you just can't help but get swept away, um, by, by his storytelling. So yeah, he, he's one of the best. Yeah, I think that's a good point. He hasn't made that many films. Like Daniel Day-Lewis, he, he picks his films very carefully. Some, I, I've heard that some, some people say that you either like Paul Thomas Anderson or you don't, because his filmmaking is, is one of a, of a more immersive, just like Daniel Day-Lewis, a more immersive nature. I've said this about Guillermo del Toro already on this podcast, about how his filmmaking is a style that, that is maybe not necessarily underappreciated, but one that isn't seen enough around Hollywood. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson, in a different way, is similar to Guillermo del Toro. His, his filmmaking needs to continue to happen whether you like it or not, whether yeah. his films resonate with you or not. And unfortunately, to kind of end on a more sad note, this film is not making its budget at the box office. 
it its budget was thirty five million, and it, I think as of today, it's only made twenty three million. So it's quite. I wonder a bit. how much of that thirty five million was like the clothes in this movie because the clothes are like beautiful. Oh yeah, I mean, I if this, I mean, I. I haven't looked at the category, but if this doesn't win Best Costume Design, I don't know what will. Yeah, it should be the only movie nominated. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure a gross portion of this budget is probably costumes, but nevertheless, it's it's one that's going to be tough. You know, next time Paul Thomas Anderson goes in front of, you know, distributors, I think I'm trying to. I don't know who distributed this film actually. I don't remember. Um, But next time he goes in front of them asking for someone to distribute his film, oh, Focus Features and Universal. Uh, distribute his film. It's gonna be. It's gonna be maybe a tougher sell because it's not making this budget. Maybe, back. but at the same time, it's still Paul Thomas Anderson, and he's he's developed a reputation right now. So fair uh, point. He's also he's also making uh, he also makes a lot of music videos, so he's getting the money back that way. He made like two Heim videos this year, so he's that's he's he's staying paid. Oh, that's really interesting, huh? I didn't <laughs> yeah. realize that. Well, Scott, I think maybe to switch back to a positive note, you gave it a nine point I gave it a nine point one. Phantom Thread is a movie. Even though I mentioned I don't want to see it again, it's a period piece that's going to stick with you for a while, and you should definitely check out if you're into uh, true drama, incredible acting, you know, across the board. You know, it's 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 worth it in my book. Yeah. All right. So as we stew as we stew over Th- Phantom Thread for a few more seconds, why don't we take another brief musical interlude and come back and talk some schmodown as well as our discussion topic of the week. <laughs> Welcome back as we embark on part three of today's Some Like It Scott. Before we get to our discussion topic that we have lined up for this week, why don't we first start with an update on the movie trivia showdown? Scott will be showing our cards here that we're recording this a week earlier than planned due to our schedule conflicts over the next several weeks, but why don't you get us started talking about what's happened in the interim since our last episode? All right, let's get ready to schmodown, as they say on the program. Um... So we had two um, episodes this week. Season five is back in full swing now. Um, and to start it off, we had the uh, number one contender team match following up the number one contender singles match that Rachel Cushing won last time that we discussed. Uh, and this was the battle of the top teams in more ways than one, top ten, and top bat. Um, top ten, of course, is old hat in the down by now. John Roca and Matt Most have been a team for going on three or four seasons now ever since the first ever team ultimate schmodown um whereas um jim vavida and eric goldman team top bat are are new to new to the schmodown they're formerly team ign they won a couple matches under that name uh, and then they won a couple more under the um, top that name and really we're we're going to be one of the team we're, we're supposed to be one of the teams to watch um coming into this match um but that being said it really was their biggest test so far as they were very quick to point out in the pre-match interviews um they, some of the teams that they had beaten to that point um, you know, were, were not some of the best teams in the Schmodown. I think DC Movie News is maybe the best team that they were able to beat, Kalinowski and Gertler. Um, I, was, I was really looking forward to this match because, of course, the winner gets a title shot at the undefeated Patriots. Um, and, you know, because they're undefeated, it always adds a layer of suspense and tension to those team title matches. Um, but they've also so, lost twice to them already. 
Do what? Haven't they already lost twice to them already, though? Top 10 has lost twice to the Patriots. Right, that's what um, I was talking about, not top that. Fair, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, so I, I went into this match knowing that if top 10 won, there was going to be a um, huge uproar, as there always is from the Lions Den, about the fact that they have to face top 10 again after they've already beaten them twice, blah, 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 blah. Um, but so, um, yeah, but before we talk about, uh, before we get into the specifics of the match, you know, what, what, what were your highlights of this episode? Yeah, so this episode it was a good one. Uh, I mean, I think I, I kind of tie everything to the match because yeah, right now yeah. I'm still getting well, into yeah, all the characters. Yeah, I'm still getting into the characters still and, and still learning the, the ins and outs of many of them. That being said, it's not like Team Top top that are returning characters of the Schmodown are like deeply, you know, deep, I don't know, like deeply present characters within the Schmodown over the years. They've, they've shown up a couple times but aren't, you know, regular. Certainly not in the way that Top 10 are, you're at. Yes. Right, right. So, I mean, the match was a, a, a banger. I mean, this was. A very high, a very highly competitive match, yeah. and it was a joy to watch. I think that, you know, that being said, it, it kind of lo- in my mind, it's lost to the hype that was involved with the with the second the Friday match. But uh, yeah. it was still an incredibly enjoyable match to watch. I was personally rooting for Team Top That. I don't know Team Top Tim at all, but I know sure, uh, yeah. I'm familiar with Jim Vavita of IGN. As you kind of mentioned, they used to be called Team IGN because I listened mm-hmm. to the IGN Movie Podcast. And so I was I was pulling for uh, Vavita and, and Team Top Top That and was a little sad when they lost, but it was a good match. Yeah, well, let's talk about a couple of the things which Team Top That did in this match that uh, may have cost them. Um, yeah, well, they did. Okay, yeah. So I can talk about that because I was actually like really confused about part of. I mean, one, they're yeah. rookies because they don't they didn't know that Team Team Top Ten and, and specifically uh, Roca is good with biopics. Oh my god! Which was such a rookie mistake, and I know that that. Vavita tried to explain it by saying that he's also good at biopics and was hoping to steal yeah. some, but he I think he was just trying to make up for the fact that he did not do his homework yes. at all there. And then I was honestly surprised and thought it was also kind of a rookie move for them not to challenge the Happy Hogan. It, that's exactly the other thing I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah because the que- like I didn't interpret the question the way, the way they did, but I thought it was a totally valid interpretation of the question. And if that was different, then it would have changed the kind of who had the who who owned the pressure going in towards the last few questions yeah, um, in the really last just round. A one point swing, but still, like, or actually no, because top ten stole it, right? Uh, no, they got it after they went to multiple choice. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, that was that was the point of contention. But yeah, I was sitting there on that question, and I, like you, I did not have the same reaction to it as them. And like, I don't know anything about comic book movies. Like, that would be one of my worst categories if I was on the Schmodown. But I was sitting there like. It's Happy Hogan. Like, everybody knows this. Like, it's, everybody knows. He's in, like, you know, 75% of the MCU films, practically. Like, everybody knows this. Um, and so I could not, for the life of me, understand why they were having so much trouble with it. Then I, you know, I, it, yeah, I finally came to realize that they were sort of overthinking it a little bit. But, yeah, at the same time, they definitely should have challenged. Um, but, but, you know, again, it is a rookie move, not only to not challenge, but, like, if you think his name is Harold Happy Hogan, just say Harold Happy Hogan. You're going to get the point. You're going to get both points if you say Happy Hogan. Like, even if Harold wasn't his first name, maybe, you know, they're only looking for Happy Hogan. So just say that. Um, yeah, but they thought but they yeah. were going to be wrong. They thought they were going to, they, ha- they weren't sure yeah. about his first name, which is the problem. That's true. But yeah, going back to, to what they did in round two, which really was the thing which cost them in the match, more so than the challenge, the missed challenge. Um, and that was choosing biopics. And I like what they tried to do with Team Top that 
pre-match, and because they haven't really been much of characters in the Schmodown before, they tried to give them this sort of narrative of, oh, we're the guys who don't actually watch the Schmodown. We just come in and we just want to win, and we just come in and win, and we just, you know, we're, we like trivia. Um, so I kind of like that they were taking the, sort of trying to give those characters a, a narrative, but I wasn't sure how serious much, much of that was until round two happened. Um, and top ten, of course, spins opponent's choice. It's a close match at this point, although Roca and Nose both went nine for nine in the first round, which is amazing. Like, shout out to Matt Nose for defying the odds and not getting five up eight like he always does in the first round and um, getting the full nine. First time ever that a team, both team members, have gotten the perfect nine. But, you know, round two, there can always be a swing, and then top ten spins opponent's choice. And I'm like, well, here you go. This is their chance to get back in it. I thought, I thought go animated um, because it's a category that not either of them knows really well. Rogue always complains whenever animated comes up. And it would have been a category they know well from their time at IGN. Yeah, and so I thought it was a no-brainer to go something like um, like animated or or coming of age even. That's another category that they don't like. Um, but then he goes biopics. And like, you know, if you don't watch the Schmodown, I get it. Like, you, you're probably not going to know certain things, but Roka is one of the top five players ever in the Schmodown. And it is like so well known if you've ever watched any Roka match, which there are plenty of them out there, like that he is unbelievable in biopics and never misses a question. So for you to not know that basic fact about a team that you are facing in a huge number one contender match, like I think um, Jim and Eric are going to have to change their approach going forward and start doing at least some research on the opponents that they are facing because it really did cost them the game um, when they went biopics. And it was hilarious to me, too, afterwards. You know, you're talking about David as saying that he went that because it was one of his strengths. And he said the two categories you're thinking about were biopics and westerns, which are literally Roka's best categories. Like, I'm not sure he's ever missed a question in either of those categories. And, I, and as David pointed out, he literally wears a cowboy hat. Yeah, so I guess he wasn't going to pick westerns. Yeah. Based on the knowledge that he has... Um, you know, biopics maybe he thought was the better option. Um, but, you know, at the same time, like, I understand his philosophy, but, like, biopics is one of those categories where, like, if you know about movies, if you have a general knowledge about movies, it's not, like, a really niche category. Like, you're probably going to even still be able to get three or four, even if it's not, like, you know, you're not like Roka. Um, but, like, animated is something where if you don't watch animated movies, you don't watch animated movies. Like, you're just, you're, you're not going to get any of them, probably. So I think you, you take a chance and you just try and think about it logically and go for something like animated instead of something like biopics where, you know, they're probably going to be able to grind out three or four no matter what. But, yeah, that really cost them in the end. Um, yeah, it did. It did. We, we will see what happens with top, men, top, uh, top ten and the Patriots round three. Um, I will say... Um, you know, my prediction came true as JTE burst into the interview and started complaining about the fact that they're going to have to face top 10 again. Um, but I will say if top 10 loses this match, um, I think there's no way back for them. I think they have to break up as a team because after three times losing title shots to the Patriots, it's just not working. Um, and as much success as they've had in the showdown, I think that would have to be the end of it. Yeah. And at the same time, if the Patriots win, um, I mean, if, I'm sorry, if top 10 manages to win, you know, 
Patriots have been champions for so long that a way that it works is they're going to get an immediate rematch against top 10 and they very well may win, in which case top 10 may just call it quits again. Um, so yeah. really the top 10 is faced at this point with the situation of having to beat the Patriots twice if they really want to stay relevant in the showdown right now. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a subplot that'll be interesting to see develop over the course of this season. And you know, definitely a subplot that is was more interesting and is more interesting going forward than kind of the what we saw on Friday like when when the professor yeah. Lon Harris and uh oh I'm already forgetting Cody Cody Hall Yeah, Cody Hall faced off. Well, what a match. Like I was not expecting much from this match. I like pretty much everyone out there thought that um Lon was going to destroy Cody. Um I will say, this is probably one of the five funniest episodes ever in the Schmodown. Like, I was LOLing, like, even through the pre-match. Um, oh, yeah. When Co- Cody dropped Smush Parker, saying that basically uh, Lon challenging him after beating Bernardin is like LeBron challenging Smush Parker to a game of one-on-one <laughs> after winning the NBA Finals was classic. I was dying at that. Yeah, um, that was a great line. And then Mark Ellis and... Um... Oh well, I'm already I'm forgetting names Ken, like crazy. Ken, Ken yeah, Kim Napsok. They were both hilarious in this episode. Yeah, they're both killing it. Um, but yeah, I you know I really hope we see more of Cody in the Schmodown. Just as a side note, because he has he was really like funny. He had really like funny deadpan like um, quality to just uh, the way he was throughout this match. Uh, Ken, yeah, match this itself. Ken, this might surprise you, but I think I'm gonna go multiple choice on this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, what what were your highlights of the match itself? The match itself was, I don't, I mean, I, I haven't watched that many episodes yet, but I was yeah. so hype for his perfect round. Oh my goodness. I was. And I will say, it's obviously, maybe Skaliski needs to beef up on his round one questions because this, all three episodes now, as Frank pointed out in the stats segment at the end, have we seen a perfect nine point round? Um, and actually, you know, four people technically have gotten it because Roka and Nose both had it in the team match. Yeah. Um, that being said, still, though, like Cody Hall, like just. Just pulled guesses out of his yeah. out of his ass mode. for this for this. And I think Lon really got rattled by what happened in that first round um, because there were two moments, two questions in the second round which were shocking to me. Um, one of, one of them he was able to get right after going to multiple choice, but the other one he just didn't get right at all. Um, and that was so. Firstly, the question about Moby Dick. Um, because Cody sp- spun uh, opponent's choice and launches classics, which is one of his best categories, um, as he is the professor. And a question came up about Moby Dick and the fact that it starred Orson Welles and I forget who, who the other person starring in the film is. Might have been Cary Grant. But, um, and then Cody went to multiple choice, missed it. And like I was sitting there thinking, how do you not, like, it, it, there's no way he's not going to get this is Moby Dick. Like, if you know anything about classics, then you are familiar with Orson Welles' infamous performance in Moby Dick, and he missed it. So first that happens, then he spends family films and does not know Wendy Peppercorn without having to go to multiple choice. Like, dude, do you know anything about movies if you don't know <laughs> Wendy Peppercorn is the lifeguard from The Sandlot? Like, I think I've seen that movie one time, and like, that is just like a one of those iconic movie facts names that always like should stand out to anyone especially someone who's playing in the showdown and who prides themselves on being sort of an intellectual uh in the showdown so i don't know what your reactions were to those things but um the 
those were, were two big moments to me that seemed to say to me that uh, Co- Cody's perfect round kind of got in Lon's head a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I think I was just so so sad the transition from round one to round two when he got opponent's choice and just got eviscerated by classics. Uh, even yeah, then, though, he was I, still I, pulling I guesses. He was still pulling crazy guesses out of his out of his ass to get questions right, though. Yeah, he got he got the bringing up baby one, which I was going to be really uh, cross if he had not at least managed to pull that one out after going to multiple choice. Because I I think from you know it, it was a question he probably should have been able to get on two points, but after he went to multiple choice, I don't remember what the other choices were, but I remember thinking it's obvious that it's bringing up baby, even if you you're, you're not familiar with it, you can ration rationalize it from the other choices um so yeah so then we go to round three and i think lawn maybe had a three-point advantage um and cody hit his first two questions i believe no Um, weren't they tied huh weren't they tied they were tied going to the final round were they tied yeah actually i think you're right yeah they were tied at 10 right that yeah that that's not that's po- right yeah yeah that's possible yep yep they were tied at 10 uh they both hit their first two questions yep and then they both missed their last question Correct. um Juan's question was about history of the world part one and it was definitely a trickier question i don't think that's one that you know is as shocking a miss as some of the others that he had so it goes to sudden death um our and first sudden death as, of the season as, our- as soon as i saw the question the, the, what the question was going to be for sudden death, I was like, well, that's the match. Um, <laughs> Crestfallen, to say the least. <laughs> it was another classics question, almost in a way, because you're talking about a movie from the 70s, um, which Cody was most likely going to know. Uh, compounding that is the fact that it was about a musical set during the American Revolution. Cody does not strike me as the guy who watches a lot of musicals. Um, Especially not of those from the uh, the uh, you know Revolutionary War era. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of which there are so many. But um, but yeah, I, I was a little upset because I was still thinking, you know, if you even if you guess, you might be able to guess 1776 is the answer. But Cody yeah. couldn't even get a guess. Um, and the professor took it home by one point. Um, and we kind of had an interesting thing that happened in the uh, post-match interview um, where Lon, I don't know, you know, exactly what the implications of this are, but sort of implied that he's going to start a faction with Cody where Lon is sort of the faction head. And, you know, they were asking him, um, Perry was doing the the post-match interviews, and she asked him about, you know, who you're going to face next. You know, he started 2-0. He might not have had the greatest second match, but he's obviously, you know, a big contender now. And he says he's going to challenge Copster, who, as um, Perry pointed out, is 0-6, I'm pretty sure, in the Schmodown. Um, so it's almost like there's this alternate universe going on where Lon is, like, a great competitor, but is only challenging, like, he's just going to go through all, the, like, the gaffers and key grips on the Schmodown <laughs> until he is, has a record of, like, 10-0, and 0, and then maybe he'll have the, the guts to challenge someone like... <laughs> JTE, but um, yeah, he's what, what he's doing is he's building his like faction of acolytes, and then he's gonna bring them to battle. I guess I yeah, don't know. I guess he's just trying to like build up, a, pad his record to like six or seven and zero before he actually like you know takes on someone of note. Yeah, that being um, said, like this this match couldn't have built his confidence up. That, that's true. I mean, you know, if he keeps playing with fire like this, there's a chance that he could get beat, and when he does. 
based on the quality of opponents that he's challenging, it could be a spectacular upset that he may never recover from, especially if he loses to Cobster, if that match actually ends up happening. Um, we will see, but that was kind of interesting. Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, we only got to cover two matches because it's only been a week since our last recording, but we're going to have a lot to talk about next time we we get back together and talk some Schmodown. We'll probably yeah, have to speed through that a little bit more quickly. And quickly looking ahead, um, next week we have three matches. Um, the Intergeekdom Fatal 5-Way on Tuesday. Uh, on Friday, uh, Mark Ellis and Jeff Snyder facing off in a big singles match. And on Thursday, the first celebrity match of the season, which was announced uh, in the post credit scene of the Top 10 Top Bat match. Um, it's a Ash versus Evil Dead match. Bruce Campbell was involved in the, the post um credit scene i'm not sure he's going to be involved in the match though i hope he um, is though that'd be awesome i love bruce campbell yeah but it, it you know from what he said it seems like you're going to have two of the cast members from ash versus evil dead and they're going to team up with uh one person is going to team up with john schnapp and the other person is going to team up with whitney seibold sort of two very interesting people to be involved in this match i didn't know that either one of them was like a horror expert um but that is the format that past celebrity matches have taken, so that's what I would expect that we will see. But that, that should be a good match. Um, uh, so, yeah, first celebrity match, and that's going to be on Thursday. So, big things ahead. Awesome. Right. So, on that note, with big things ahead, why don't we turn to our discussion <laughs> topic of the week? What do we have in store for our listeners today? So, thinking about discussion topics for this um, uh episode i you know i try to think of something that was relevant that's relevant um last week we last time we talked about the best sports movie since the super bowl is going on um and so <laughs> i just took a little look at the box office um, stats for this past weekend and uh i know for a fact that you saw this but 50 shades free the final film in the 50 shades of gray uh trilogy um it raked in 137 million this weekend. And uh, to clarify, to clarify, I did not see this movie, but I saw the stat that no, this no, no, bring no. in 137 million dollars. Yeah, I would honestly, I would not have expected you to ever show your face or or um, sound your voice on this podcast again if you saw this movie. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Fifty Shades Free came out at 137 million, which I'm personally I'm livid about, but. Um, you know, I, I guess is some of it coming back around for the last time. Last time, either the first it was this was either the first movie or the second movie when it came out. The Lego Movie uh, beat it at the box office, and I remember celebrating karmic victory um, of that. Um, but there was there were no Lego movies this time, unfortunately, to dethrone it. But um, the success of Fifty Shades Free got me thinking about um, best movies involving chains and whips. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> the 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 discussion topic for this week is going to be the worst uh, book to film adaptation. Which, honestly, there's a uh, there's a ripe crop of movies to choose from. I think. And um, on that note, um, I think there are a couple honorable mentions that we both want to mention before we get to our picks. So, uh, what what were a couple that uh, you thought about but didn't quite uh, make it? Uh, yeah. For your answer. Yeah, there was quite, there was about three that instantly came to my mind when you tossed this idea for discussion topic of the week out and the honorable mentions for me are going to be the percy jackson adaptation so there i know there was, there was also like a direct a direct to dvd like sequel as well so like it didn't do so poorly at the box office that it didn't spawn a sequel but i remember lightning yeah. thief being pretty poor at the box office and and then it's it's 
its sequel, uh, Sea of Monsters, got went direct to DVD. Didn't even come out in theaters. And then, Sheesh. yeah. And then the other book to film adaptation that that was pretty bad is the Alex Ryder Lightning Thief. Oh, no, not sorry, not Lightning Thief. Just Alex Ryder. Uh, Alex Ryder Operation Stormbreaker. Uh, I believe is the yeah, name that's of the right. Movie. Operation Stormbreaker is the name of that first book. Uh, garbage. I, garbage. A book series that I I really enjoyed as a child exactly. and was really trash in theaters i'll never forget the scene uh, scenes of mickey rourke hamming it up with his portuguese man of war uh, with his portuguese fighting fish um yeah just a horrible movie yep indeed uh so yeah so for my honorable mention choices um you know there were uh, reasons why i didn't go with both of these the first one one of the movies that i thought about was the girl on the train just came out last year i believe um awful and the reason i decided not to go with this movie is because i also did not like the book um and for me a bad book to film adaptation is one that takes a great novel and just ruins it um and so you know i can't rightly say that about the girl on the train because i really wasn't a fan of the book however i did see the movie thinking that because yeah you know the book has been likened to gone girl uh and gone girl is another book which i was not crazy about but I ended up loving the movie. Um, yeah, that movie. Thought, that movie was very the, good. Yeah, one of the rare um, movies that is actually better than the book. Um, so I thought, you know, I had an open mind going into the girl on the train, but it was just depressing. Um, like no one to root for, nothing but just darkness and dreariness and depression in this movie. Um, and the other, so the other one I thought of was not technically a book um because not technically based on a book um and that's why i didn't end up going with it um but actually based on a play and that is um william shakespeare's romeo plus juliet directed by baz Luhrmann. um honestly we could do a whole discussion topic just about shakespeare adaptations bad and good because there are plenty of them out there um but this to me is the worst of the worst um I'm not totally opposed to people doing modern um, approaches on Shakespeare, although I am kind of a purist when it comes to Shakespeare. I uh, I have the complete works on my bedside table. Um, Nerd. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been to Shakespeare's hometown, though. I've seen the Royal Shakespeare Company, so I've uh, I've experienced Shakespeare as it was meant to be performed, as I will say. Yeah, you're um, such an elitist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I gotta. I gotta. Um, I gotta name drop a little bit, but. Um, but, yeah, I'm not totally opposed to modern approach on Shakespeare, but this one was just ridiculous from uh, Mercutio taking LSD to the opening uh, fight scene, turning into a gas station shootout. Yeah. Um, Give to, me my longsword. <laughs> yeah, Romeo and Juliet spying each other through a fish tank when they, like, first see each other for the first time. Um, it was just every every scene had something cringy in it. And this is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. Um, and not even some very earnest performances from Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes could save this one. Um, but yeah, so let's, on that note, let's get to our, our picks. What was your uh, pick for this particular topic? Yeah, kind of similar in theme to our to my honorable mentions, which were, as I already said, the Alex Ryder Stormbreaker and the Percy Jackson uh, Lightning Thief. This is also kind of a, a childhood book of mine that I really enjoyed reading that was then kind of bastardized on screen. And uh, Aragon. So the Aragon film adaptation was honestly, I, I think I still might have nightmares occasionally about like how terrible <laughs> this film was. And I still enjoy 
kind of revisiting that book. I listened to it sometimes on audio tape and I remember having read it for the first time, actually shortly before the movie came out, I was kind of a late comer to that series mm-hmm. and seeing it in theaters was just a horrible, horrible experience. Well, I believe we might've, did you see it also like when we were in middle school? I think so. They, uh, yeah. They gave us a, they let us go see Aragon uh, for, because we read the most pages out of anyone in the middle school. That sounds and, right. Uh, yeah. It was a punishment more than a reward, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, they just, did, they just did such terrible things to, to like the whole transformation of Sophia, who is Aragon, who is kind of Aragon, the, the, titular character's dragon in the film. Uh, the transformation is horribly done. All of the relationships are, are just re- really poorly developed and don't make any sense. Charisma is awful in in the movie, and they just really make a horror show of some of like the best characters in that film, including Brom, who is unfortunately played by... Uh, oh, I'm forgetting his name right now, but I can picture him. He's played by... The, he, he plays Alfred in Batman vs. Superman. Um... Jeremy Irons. Oh yes. Yeah, Jeremy yes. Irons plays plays Brom in that film, who is a great character in the book, and through no fault of his own, uh, really doesn't isn't isn't given much help with his performance. Yeah, you know, he's. I always it, it always cracks me up when you see like a great actor like that slumming it in a movie that is obviously terrible, and you just have to wonder: do they know how bad this movie is? Yeah, well, I hope he didn't know that, and I don't want to <laughs> go on for too long about how terrible this yeah. film is because it'll just make me depressed. But what was your what was your worst worst book to film adaptation? Yeah, so you know, I, I'm afraid that this is going to be the episode of the podcast where Baz Luhrmann. Uh, no longer is a devoted listener, um, as <laughs> yeah. I'm certain he has been through the first three episodes. Um, but I'm going with another Baz Luhrmann book to film adaptation, and that is The Great Gatsby. Um, some people like this movie. Like, I don't get. I, it might even have a positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but this movie, to me, is Baz Luhrmann giving into all of his worst tendencies um, from the really over the top visuals. Um, and I understand, like, you know, the point of Gatsby's lifestyle is that he is a very lavish, um, you know, he lives this very lavish, very extravagant lifestyle. And these parties, you know, are supposed to be sort of larger than life. But the extent to which Baz Luhrmann takes it um, and, like, the way he just, like, sort of blurs when this movie is supposed to be set, um, especially with the way he uses, like, modern music, um, like hip-hop. Uh, on the soundtrack, like, it's just so messy and so fractured and weird. Um, And, you know, worst of all is how heavy-handed the storytelling is, because what makes the book one of the greatest novels ever is just the subtlety of it. Um, But the way he beats you over the head with these symbols, whether it's the blinking green light on the dock or the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, I mean, he literally beats you over the head with these symbols by showing them 10, 15 times until we're like, dude, we get it. And like, you know, the moments when Fitzgerald did employ those symbols, like to great effect, are totally lost in the movie because we've just been so bludgeoned with uh, the continue, continuing references to, you know, these, these metaphors um, that Fitzgerald made so famous. Um, I think the performances are fine. Like, I think 
Tobey Maguire and Leo DiCaprio were both like well cast. Um, Carrie Mulligan as well. But yeah, this is you know they could not save this movie from Baz Luhrmann. Um, you know I like Moulin Rouge, Baz. If you're still listening at this point, um, but uh, yeah, this to me uh, epitomizes a bad book to film adaptation because it takes one of the greatest novels ever written and turns it into a farce. Yeah, forty-eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, fifty-five on okay. Metacritic. Um, not a positive, not a fresh, not a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but also not as bad as Aragorn, which has a sixteen on Rotten Tomatoes, which is also not as bad as Fifty Shades Freed, which has an eleven on Rotten Tomatoes. So, people who went and watched Fifty Shades Freed this weekend, I'm really sorry. Yeah, and you know, you're the stats guy. Um, you are to this show what Frank Janish is to the smoke to the Schmodown. <laughs> but I have a I have a whopping stat for you in light of. Um, the Fifty Shades Freed, what you just told us about it being 11% on the uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. I read this week that the combined score, all three movies together in the Fifty Shades franchise on Rotten Tomatoes, is 46%. Um, so it doesn't even come close to being fresh when you combine all three movies together, um, which I guess shouldn't be a surprise considering the quality of this books. I mean, we're talking about a book series which contains the line, uh, my face turned as red, or turned the same color as the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> um, so there's only so much you can expect, I guess, from an adaptation of these novels. Um, but still, that is, you know, it, that's why it makes me sad to see it making 137 million. Um, and to be fair, I don't think a lot of people are going to this movie to see uh, high quality cinema. No, no, but that's true. We shouldn't be rewarding movies that aren't high quality cinema especially if you know they are not going to be all right high quality cinema when you go into them sure that's, i mean that's, that's my opinion yeah Maybe i mean it's a hot take but that's my opinion we don't we don't want to be too snobbish around like going to see good or bad no, films no. but we also recognize that like it's not like people are i mean people are seeing this film for a different reason than you're describing and i just fact checked the rotten tomatoes thing and that is true i can confirm that stat is is 100 percent true is 20 only, 25 for, the, only, for 50 shades of gray 10 for 50 Shades Darker, and then 11 for 50 Shades Freed. And like I said, like you said, I don't want to seem snobbish about it. The only reason I'm um, bash on this movie is be- bash on these movies is because um, I don't, you know, the, the poor quality of the literature. Like I, I think it shouldn't be popular in the first place because of how poor the literature, the the, the books are. Um, and also, just from a moral standpoint, like you know, I don't know too much about the storyline of this movie. But I know enough to know that it's very stalkerish. It is borderline rapey at some points, um, and like just from a moral standpoint, um, it's it's garbage. Like I'm sorry to say, E. L. James, but yeah. Well, we will leave <laughs> worst book to film adaptations and Fifty Shades series. And that Far I think, behind. yeah. And to kind of wrap up this week, I do want to revisit a topic we talked about last week in sort of a news, in kind of a newsy way. Although it's not, I wouldn't necessarily call it news in the same sense as some of the stuff we talked about last week. But the solo trailer, which we briefly mentioned was coming out last week, did come out, and I wanted to get your take on it because I, as as excited as I talked about I was last week on the podcast about this trailer after the teaser that was released during the Super Bowl, I was very disappointed by the trailer that actually did end up releasing and it's not going to change me going and seeing solo but it it does kind of perk perk me up and and wonder make me wonder about what whether this film's going to be good 
Yeah, I had a similar reaction. You know, I don't want to read too much into a trailer, especially because I have had, there have been times in the past where I have thought the movie looked terrible and then ended up from the trailers and then ended up loving it. The movie that I think of is Edge of Tomorrow, um, which I think everybody talked about how turgid the trailers were for that movie, but then is absolutely an absolute blast of a movie. Like, maybe my favorite action movie of the last five years um that's high praise like i i i love that movie um and and just the trailers really belied how much fun it was but um but anyway as solo as far as solo goes so i don't want to overreact too much to the trailer but i agree it was very disappointing um really nothing that got me excited about you know star wars and it, it, it didn't push any of the familiar buttons um, that you would expect a Star Wars movie um, to push, and like uh, you know, the things that that I love about Star Wars weren't there, and they were replaced by just really corny, cliche like moments. Like Han Solo to me just seems like your stereotypical like corny, like oh look at me, I'm a yeah, I'm a roguish, uh, I'm a handsome rogue uh, who is you know kind of. Uh, kind of a douche but also kind of likable um and you're gonna you know you're gonna i'm gonna win you over by the end of this movie like i don't know i it seemed like a very one-dimensional portrayal of uh, of han solo to me just from the the movie uh, the um the the trailer and i said this to you after i watched it like i if i had not if there had not been certain things like maybe chewie's presence or like you know we see the millennium falcon at a couple's points you know, I wouldn't have even known that this was a Star Wars movie. It just looks like a pretty basic sci-fi um, film. So, you know, while that's not encouraging, um, you know, it, it's not going to stop me from seeing the movie. And hopefully I'll be proven wrong by Ron Howard. Yeah, I hope so too. And on that note, I think that just about does it for episode three of Sound Like It's Scott. Scott, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Um... Don't go see Fifty Shades Free, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, go see Phantom Thread, because that movie is underperforming yes. its budget, and definitely Paul Thomas Anderson should make money off that film. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, if you want to get in on the Schmodown train, now is as good a time as any. Donate to the Patreon. Um, support those boys. Um, it's it's going to be a, a good season, I think. Yep. All right. Where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarvey Dent. Um I am still there, and I'm still lamenting uh, and celebrating the uh, conflicting uh, fates of my sports team <laughs> with each passing weekend. Um, it's it's quite a roller coaster, um, almost on the level of seeing Phantom Thread. Fair enough. All right, I'm I'm Scott Shelton. I can be found at S Shelton 2013 over on Twitter. But more importantly, please, Scott mentioned Patreon for the movie trivia showdown, but. Also, don't forget about our Patreon. I'll include the relevant link in the description, but we did want to remind you that our Patreon page is live, and we'd love it if you checked it out and even yes, supported it. Yes, we love our patrons. Yes, and even supported us. We already have several patrons over there who have pledged $11 per month, which means we're very, very close to breaking even on the cost of this show. Uh, so we'd really love it if you could go over there, contribute. You will be getting uh, reward tiers that you will you can check out on our Patreon page. <laughs> if and, you give enough money, you get to hang out with us. That's which, true. Uh Trust me, it's not all it's cracked up to be, but you should still donate. Yeah, that's an incredible sell to our listeners. So thank you for that. Uh, there are some other tiers that are even that are that might be more attractive, including getting bonus episodes from us, which we are yes. currently uh, in the process of forming what we want those to be. 
But if you choose not to support us on Patreon, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, where we'd really appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, subscribed and shared, all that jazz, so we continue to breach out to a broader audience. All right, I think I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back in a few weeks on Oscar weekend, where we'll be taking to task Black Panther and Annihilation. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful day. Bye, everybody. Bye.